0: Following is a conversation with Charles Isbell and Michael Littman. Charles is the Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech and Michael is a computer science professor at Brown University. I've spoken with each of them individually on this podcast and since they are good friends in real life, we all thought it would be fun to have a conversation together. Quick mention of each sponsor, followed by some thoughts related to the episode. Thank you to Athletic Greens the all-in-one drink that I start every day with to cover all my nutritional bases, eight sleep, a mattress that cools itself and gives me yet another reason to enjoy sleep, masterclass, online courses from some of the most amazing humans in history, and Cash App, the app I use to send money to friends. Please check out these sponsors in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that uh, having two guests on the podcast is an experiment that I've been meaning to do for a while. In particular, because uh, down the road, I would like to occasionally be a kind of moderator for debates between people that may disagree in some interesting ways. If you have suggestions for who you would like to see debate on this podcast, let me know. As with all experiments of this kind, it is a learning process both the video and the audio might need improvement. I realized I think I should probably do three or more cameras next time as opposed to just two, and also try different ways to mount the microphone for the third person. Also, after recording this intro, I'm going to have to go figure out the uh, thumbnail for the video version of the podcast, since I usually put the guest's head on the thumbnail, and uh, now there's two heads and two names, to try to fit into the thumbnail. It's a kind of uh, bin packing problem, which in uh, theoretical computer science happens to be an NP-hard problem. Whatever I come up with, if you have better ideas for the thumbnail, let me know as well. And in general, I always welcome ideas how this thing can be improved. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, review it with Five Stars on Apple Podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter, At Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but I do give you timestamps so you can go ahead and skip if you must. But please do check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the uh, multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. I do intermittent fasting of 16 to 24 hours every day and always break my fast with athletic greens. I can't say enough good things about these guys. It uh, helps me not worry whether I'm getting all the nutrients I need. One of the many reasons I'm a fan is that they keep iterating on their formula. I love continuous improvement. Life is not about reaching perfection, it's about constantly striving for it and making sure each iteration is a positive delta. The other thing I've taken for a long time outside of Athletic Greens is fish oil. So I'm especially excited, even though I genetically don't seem to be capable of generating the sound of excitement with my voice, I'm excited now that they're selling fish oil and are offering listeners of this podcast free one month's, supply of wild-caught omega-3 fish oil. When you go to athleticgreens.com lex to claim this special offer, click athleticgreens.com lex in the description to get the fish oil and the all-in-one supplement I rely on for the nutritional foundation of my physical and mental performance. This episode is also sponsored by Eight Sleep and it's Pod Pro Mattress. It controls temperature with an app. It's packed with sensors. It can cool down to as low as 55 degrees on each side of the bed separately. It's been a game changer for me. I just enjoy sleep and power naps more. I feel like I fall asleep faster and get more restful sleep. Combination of cool bed and warm blanket is amazing. Now, if you love your current mattress, but still looking for temperature control, ASleep's new Pod Pro cover dynamic cooling and heating capabilities onto your current mattress. It can cool down to 55 degrees or heat up to 110 degrees, and do so on each side of the bed separately. It's magic, really. Also, it can track a bunch of metrics like heart rate variability, but uh, honestly, cooling alone is worth the money. Go to asleep.com slash lex, and when you buy stuff there during the holidays, you get special savings as listeners of this podcast. And you know the savings are special because I use the word special. Again, that's uh, 8sleep.com slash Lex. This show is also sponsored by Masterclass. $180 a year for an all-access pass to watch courses from literally the best people in the world on a bunch of different topics. Let me list some that I have watched and enjoyed. Chris Hatfield on space exploration. Neil deGrasse Tyson on scientific thinking and communication. I probably should get Neil on this podcast soon. Will Wright, creator of SimCity and Sims on game design. Carlos Santana on guitar. I'm working on Europa right now, actually. Gary Kasparov on chess. Daniel Negrano on poker. Neil Gaiman on storytelling. Martin Scorsese on filmmaking. Tony Hawk on skateboarding. And Jane Goodall on conservation. By the way, you can watch it on basically any device. Sign up at masterclass.com Lex for the buy one, get one free membership for you and a friend. That's masterclass.com slash Lex. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the app store. When you get it, use code Lex Podcast. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. In fact, just uh, yesterday, I think, I tweeted that the Mars economy will run on uh, cryptocurrency. I do believe that's true. It's kind of the obvious trajectory, but it's also fun to talk about. And I wonder what that cryptocurrency will be. Right now, Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum seem to be dominating the space. But who knows what 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now looks like. Anyway, I hope to talk to a bunch of folks from the cryptocurrency space on this podcast soon, including once again, the great, the powerful Vitalik Buterin. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store, Google Play, and use code Lex, Podcast, you get 10 bucks, and Cash App will also donate $10 to First, an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young folks around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Charles Isbell and Michael Lidman. You'll probably disagree about this question, but what is your biggest, would you say, disagreement about either something uh, profound and very important or something completely not important at all.
1: I don't think we have any disagreements at all.
2: Uh, I'm not sure that's <laughs> true. <laughs>
1: we walked into that one, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, So, that's, that's so good. one
2: thing that you sometimes mention is that, and we did this one on air too, as it were, whether or not machine learning is computational statistics. It's not. But it
1: is. Well, it's not. And in particular, and more importantly, it is not just computational statistics. So what's missing in the picture? What's- All the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> what's missing? That which is missing. Oh, because yeah. yes. Well, you can't
2: be wrong now.
1: Well, it's not just the statistics. He doesn't even believe this. We've had this conversation before. If it were just the statistics, then we would be happy with where we are. But it's not just the statistics.
2: That's why it's computational statistics. Or if it
1: were just the computational I agree that machine
2: statistics. learning is not just statistics.
1: It is not just statistics. We can agree it, on that. Nor is it just computational statistics. It's computational statistics. It is computational. What is the computational
0: statistics. and computational statistics? Does this take us into the realm of computing?
1: It does. But I think perhaps the way I can get him to admit that uh, he's wrong, he's wrong. Uh, <laughs> is that it's about rules about rules. It's about symbols. It's about all these other things. But the statistics the is not
2: theory. about rules. I'm going to say statistics is about mm, rules.
1: But it's not just the statistics, right? It's not just a random variable that you choose and you have a probability I think
2: you have a, a narrow view of statistics.
1: Okay, well then what would be the broad view of statistics that would still allow it to be statistics and not say history uh, that would make <laughs> computational statistics okay? Well, okay, so I, I
2: had my, my first r- sort of research mentor, uh, a guy named Tom Landauer, w- taught me to do some statistics, right? Sure. And and I was annoyed all the time because the statistics would say that what I was doing was not statistically significant. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "But, but, but." And basically, what he said to me is, "Statistics is how you're going to keep from lying to yourself," which I thought was really deep.
1: It is a way to keep yourself honest in a particular way. I agree with that.
2: Yeah, and so you're trying to find rules. I'm just kind of mm-hmm. bringing it back to rules.
1: Wait, wait, wait. C- uh,
0: could you possibly try to define? Rules. Even
2: regular statisticians, non computational statisticians, do spend some of their time. Evaluating rules, right? Applying statistics to try to understand is this, you know, is this does this rule capture this? Does this not capture this? You mean like, like
0: hypothesis testing kind sure. of thing? or like, yeah. like confidence intervals, like like have like I think
2: more like hypothesis. Like I feel like the word statistic literally means like a summary, like a number that summarizes other numbers. Right. But I think the field of statistics actually applies that idea to to things like rules, to understand whether or not a rule is valid.
1: So software engineering statistics? No programming languages statistics no because i think there's a very it's useful to think about a lot of what ai and machine learning is or certainly should be as software engineering mm. uh, as programming languages just the, if to put it in language that you might understand the hyperparameters beyond the problem itself, the hyperparameters
2: right? is too many syllables for me to understand
1: the hyper parameters <laughs> uh, that's better that goes around it right it's the decisions you choose to make it's the Metrics you choose to use—it's the loss function. So you, you, you want to say to the
2: practice on. of machine learning is different than the practice of statistics. Like the things you have to worry about and how you worry about them are different. Therefore, they're different.
1: Right. At a very little. I mean, at the very least, it's that that okay. much is true. It doesn't mean that statistics, computational or otherwise, aren't important. I think they are. I mean, I do a lot of that, for example. But I think it goes beyond that. I think the. We could think about game theory in terms of statistics, but I don't think it's very as useful to do. I mean, the way I would think about it or a way I would think about it is this way. Chemistry is just physics. Mm. But I don't think it's as useful to think about chemistry as being just physics. It's useful to think about it as chemistry. The level of abstraction really matters here.
2: So I think it is there are contexts in which it is useful to yes. think of it that way, right? No, and no, so finding a- that connection is actually helpful. And I think that's when I when I emphasize the computational statistics thing. I think I think I want to befriend statistics and not absorb them.
1: Here's the, here's the A way to think about it beyond what I just said, right? So what would you say, and I want you to think back to a conversation we had a very long time ago. What would you say is the difference between, say the early 2000s, ICML and what we used to call NIPs, NURPS, hmm. is there a difference? A lot of the, particularly on the machine learning that was done there? Hmm.
0: ICML was around that long. Oh yeah. So ICLEAR is the new conference, newish. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And ICML was around the 2000. Oh, but-
1: ICML predates that.
2: I, well, I think my most cited ICML paper is from 94. Yeah.
1: Michael knows this better than me because, of course, he's significantly older than I am. But the point is, yeah. what is the difference what is the difference between ICML and NeurIPS in the late 90s, early 2000s? I don't know what everyone
2: else's perspective would be, but I had a particular perspective at which that was. time. Which is, I felt like ICML was more of a, of a computer science place mm-hmm. and that NeurIPS, NeurIPS was more of an engineering place. Like the kind of math that happened at the two places. Oh, As a computer scientist, I felt more comfortable with the ICML math. And the NERPs people would say that that's because I'm dumb. Mm-hmm. And that's such an engineering thing to say. So
1: well, I agree with that part of it, but I do it a little differently. Actually, I had a nice conversation with Tom Dietrich about this in on public Twitter. on Twitter just a couple of days ago. I put it a little differently, which is that ICML was machine learning done by uh, computer scientists and uh, NURPS was uh, machine learning done by computer scientists trying to impress statisticians. <laughs> <laughs> which was weird because it was the same people, at least by the time I started paying attention, but it just felt very, very different. And I think that that perspective of whether you're trying to impress the statisticians or you're trying to impress the programmers is actually very different and has real impact on, on what, um, yeah, on the what you choose to worry about and what kind of uh, outcomes you come to. So I think it really matters. I think computational statistics is a means to an end. It is not an end in some sense. Um, and I think that really matters here. In the same way that I don't think computer science is just engineering or just science or just math or whatever. Okay,
2: so I'd have to now agree that now we agree on everything.
1: Yes, yes. The important thing here is that, (laughs) you know, my opinions may have changed, but not the fact that I'm right, I think is what what we just came to. Right, and
2: my opinions may have changed and not the fact that I'm wrong. That's right. Uh, I lost me.
1: I'm not even... I think I lost myself there too. But anyway, we're back. We're back. (laughs) Uh,
2: This happens to us sometimes. We're sorry.
0: How does neural networks change this... Just to even linger on this topic, change this idea of statistics, how big of a pie statistics is within the machine learning thing. Like, because it sounds like hyperparameters and also just the role of data. You know, this people are starting to use the terminology of software 2.0, which is like the act of programming as a, as a, like you're a designer in the hyperparameter space of neural networks, and you're also the collector and the organizer and the cleaner uh, of the data, and that's part of the programming. Uh, So how did, on the NeurIPS versus ICML topic, what's the role of neural networks in redefining the
1: size and the role of machine learning? I can't can't wait to to hear what Michael thinks about this, but um, I would add one. but <laughs> I, that's true. I will. I'll force myself to. I think the... <laughs> The, there's one other thing I would add to your description, which is the kind of software engineering part Is what does it mean to debug, for example. Right. But this is a difference between uh, the kind of computational statistics view of machine learning and the co- computational view of machine learning, uh, which is, I think, one is worried about the equation, as it were. And by, by the way, this is not a value judgment. I just think it's about perspective. But the kind of questions you would ask when you start asking yourself, well, what does it mean to program and develop and build the system is a very computer science-y view of the problem. I mean, when if you get on... Uh, data science Twitter and econ Twitter, you actually hear this a lot with the uh, you know the economists and the data scientists complaining about the machine learning people. Well, it's it, you know it's just statistics, and I don't know why they don't don't see this. But they're not even asking the same questions. They're not thinking about it as a kind of programming problem. And I think that that really matters. Just asking this question, I actually think it's a little different from uh, programming in hyperparameter space and and sort of collecting the data. I, but I do think that that immersion really matters. So I'll give you a quick, a quick example of the way I think about this. So I teach machine learning. Michael and I have co-taught a machine learning class, which has now reached, I don't know, 10,000 people at least over the last several years or somewhere there's about. And my machine learning assignments are of this form. So the, super, the first one is something like implement these five algorithms, You know KNN and, N and S, you know, SVMs and boosting and decision trees and neural networks. And maybe that's it, I can't remember. And when I say implement, I mean steal the code. I am completely uninterested. You get zero points for getting the thing to work. Mm-hmm. I don't want you spending your time worrying about uh, getting the corner case right of you know what happens when you are trying to normalize distances and the points on the thing and so you divide by zero. I'm not interested in that, right? Mm-hmm. Steal the code. However, you're going to run those algorithms on two data sets. The data sets have to be interesting. What does it mean to be interesting? Well, a data set's interesting if it reveals differences between algorithms, which presumably are all the same because they can represent whatever they can represent. And two data sets are interesting together if they show different differences, as it were. And you have to analyze them. You have to justify their interestingness and you have to analyze them in a whole bunch of ways. But all I care about is the data in your analysis, not the programming. And I occasionally end up in these long discussions with students. Well, I don't really, I copy and paste the things that I've said the other (laughs) 15,000 times it's come up, which is, they go, but the only way to learn, really understand is to code them up, which is a very programmer software engineering view of the world. If you don't program it, you don't understand it, which is, by the way, I think is wrong in a very specific way. But it is a way that you come to understand because then you have to wrestle with the algorithm. Mm -hmm. But the thing about machine learning is it's not just sorting numbers where in some sense the data doesn't matter. What matters is, well, does the algorithm work on these abstract things, Mm -hmm. one less than the other. In machine learning, the data matters. It Mm -hmm. it matters more than almost anything. Mm -hmm. And not everything, but almost anything. And so as a result, you have to live with the data and don't get distracted by the algorithm per se. And I think that that focus on the data and what it can tell you and what question it's actually answering for you as opposed to the question you thought you were asking is a key and important thing about machine learning and is a way that computationalists as opposed to statisticians bring a particular view about how to think about the process the statisticians by contrast bring i i think i'd be willing to say a better view about the kind of formal math that's behind it and what Mm. an actual number ultimately is saying about the data and those are both important but they're also different i didn't really think of it this way
0: is to build intuition about the role of data the different characteristics of data by having two data sets that are different and they reveal the differences in the differences yeah. that's that's a really fascinating that's a really interesting educational approach the
2: students love it but not right away no they love they it they love the it end. later they
1: love it at the end not at the beginning <laughs> not, even,
2: not even immediately after.
0: I feel like it's there's a, a deep, profound ahead. lesson about education there. Yeah. Th- that uh, you can't listen to students
1: about whether what you're doing is the right or the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, as, as a wise, uh, Michael Lipman once said to me about children, which I think applies to teaching, is you have to give them what they need without bending to their will. And students are like that. You have to figure out what they need. You're a curator. Your whole job is to curate and to present. Because on their own, they're not going to necessarily know where to search. So you're providing pushes in some direction and learn space. uh, And you have to give them what they need in a way that keeps them engaged enough so that they eventually discover what they want and they get the tools they need to go and learn other things.
0: What's your view? Let me put on my Russian hat which believes that life is I suffering. like Russian hats, by the way. If you have one, I would like to. <laughs> Those are ridiculous, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in a delightful way, but sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what do you think is the role of, uh, we talked about balance a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the role of hardship in education? Like, I think the biggest things I've learned, like the what made me fall in love with math, for example, is by being bad at it, until I got good at it. So like like struggling with a problem, which increased the level of joy I felt when I finally figured it out. And it always felt with me, with teachers, especially modern discussions of education, how can we make education more fun, more engaging, more all those things? Or from my perspective, is like, you're maybe missing the point that education, that life is suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Education is supposed to be hard, and that actually what increases the joy you feel when you actually learn something. Is that r- ridiculous? <laughs> do you like no, to I see your that. students suffer?
2: <laughs> okay, so th- w- this may be a point where we differ. I suspect not. gonna okay. do go on. Well, what would your answer be? I want to hear you first. Okay. Well, I, what I was going to not answer the question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want the students to I know was gonna, you going them suffer?
2: No, 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 no. I was I was going to say that there's. I think there's a, d- a distinction that you can make in the kind of suffering, right? So I think you can be in a mode where you're, you're suffering in a hopeless way versus you're suffering in a hopeful way, right? Where you're like, you can see that if you, that you still have, you can still imagine getting to the end, right? And as long as people are in that mindset where they're struggling, but it's not a hopeless kind of struggling, that's, that's productive. I think that's really helpful. But it's struggling, like if you, you break their will, mm-hmm. if you leave them hopeless, no, that don't, I'm sure, some people are going to, whatever, lift themselves up by their bootstraps. But like mostly you give up and certainly it takes the joy out of it. And you're not going to spend a lot of time on something that brings you no joy. So it's a, it's, it is a bit of a delicate balance, right? You have to thwart people in a way that they still believe that there's
1: a way through. Right, so that's a that uh, we strongly agree, actually. So I think, well, first off, struggling and suffering aren't the same thing, mm. right? Just yeah, being poetic. Oh no, no, I, <laughs> I actually appreciate the poetry, and and I one of the reasons I appreciate it is that they are often the same thing and often quite different, right? So you can struggle without suffering. You can certainly suffer, suffer, suffer pretty easily. You don't necessarily have to struggle to suffer. So I think that you want people to struggle but that hope matters you have to, they have to understand that they're gonna get through it on the other side. And it's very easy to confuse the two. Um, I actually think Brown University has a very, just philosophically has a very different take on the relationship with their students, particularly undergrads from say, a place like Georgia okay. Tech, which is- Which university uh, better? better? Uh, well, I have my opinions on that. I mean,
2: remember Charles said, it doesn't matter what the facts are. I'm always right. The
1: yeah. correct answer he's right. is that it doesn't matter. They're different, um, but they're clearly doesn't <laughs> <clearly, clearly laughs>
2: he, that. Well, he, he, he went to a school like he, the school where he is as an undergrad. Yeah, I right. went to a school specifically the same school, though it was it changed a bit in the in the intervening years. Wait, Brown or Georgia Tech? No, I was talking about Georgia Tech. And Georgia I went. Changed. Yeah, and I went to an undergrad place that's a lot like the place where I work now, and so it does seem like we're more familiar with these models.
0: But there's a similarity between Brown and Yale.
1: Like yeah,
2: a, I, I, think I think they're quite similar, yeah.
1: And Duke. Duke has some similarities too,
2: but it's got a little Southern drawl.
1: You've kind of worked your, you've sort of worked at universities that are like the places where you learned. Hmm. And the same would be true for me.
0: Hmm. Are you uncomfortable uh, venturing outside the box?
1: Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Journeying Not out? That's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, Charles is definitely, it, <laughs>
0: he only
2: goes to places that have institute in the name,
1: right? It has worked out that way. Well, academic places anyway. Well, no, I was a visiting scientist at UPenn, or visiting, visiting something at UPenn.
0: Oh, wow, I just, I just understood your joke. Which one? (laughs) Five minutes later. (laughs) I like to set these sort of time bombs. (laughs) The institute is in the... the Charles only goes to places that have institute in the name. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I guess Georgia... I I forget that Georgia Tech is Georgia Institute Institute of Technology. Technology
1: The The number of people who refer to it as Georgia Tech University is large and incredibly irritating. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the few things that genuinely gets under my skin.
2: But like schools like Georgia (laughs) Tech and MIT have as part of the ethos. Like there is... I want to say there's a there's an abbreviation that someone taught me, like I-H-T-F-P, something like that. Like there's a, there's, a, there's an expression, which is basically, I hate being mm-hmm. here, which mm-hmm. they say so proudly. And yes. that is definitely not the ethos at Brown. Like Brown is, the, there's a little more pampering and empowerment and yes. stuff. And it's not like we're going to crush you and you're going to love it. So yeah, I think there's a, I think the ethoses are different. Mm-hmm. That's
1: interesting. Yeah. We had Drone Proofer. What's that? Traum- in Brown order to proof. graduate from Georgia Tech, this is a true thing. Feel free to look it up. Uh, <laughs> if you, a lot of schools to, have this, by the way. No. Actually, yeah. Georgia Tech was
2: apparently the first. Brandeis has it. Had it. I feel like Brandeis Georgia
1: Tech, it. Was, the a, Georgia was, Georgia Tech of, was the first in a lot of, in a lot of, of things. It was, it was the first in a lot of things. Um, had the first, first master's bubble degree. Bee mascot. Degree. Stop that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> first uh, master's in computer science, actually. Right, or, online master's. Well, that too, but oh, way back sorry. in the 60s. Um, oh, NSF grant. Really? Yeah, yeah. We had nice. the first information and computer science master's degree in the country. Um, wow. But the uh, Georgia Tech, it used to be the case that in order to graduate from Georgia Tech, uh, you had to take a drown-proofing class, where effectively they threw you in the water, tied you up. If you didn't drown, you got to graduate. Tied fact, you up? I believe so. You no. had, you basically had, There were certainly versions of it. But I mean, luckily, they ended it just before I had to graduate, because otherwise we would have never graduated. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Uh, I want to say 83 four eighty three, someone around then they, wow. they they ended it. But uh yeah, you used to have to prove you could tread water for some ridiculous amount of time or you <laughs> couldn't graduate. It more, no, it was more than two <laughs> I minutes. I bet it was two minutes. Okay, well we'll look And up. it was in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, just... <laughs> it, was, it was in a pool. But it was a real yeah. thing. But that idea that yeah. you know push you fully clothed. Uh, yeah, fully clothed. It, I don't think I bet program. I
2: bet it was that and not tied up. Because like who needs to learn how to swim when you're tied? Nobody, who but who needs to learn when to swim when you're actually falling into the water dressed? That's a real thing.
0: I think your facts are getting in the way with a good story. Oh,
1: that's fair. That's fair. I didn't think. Be... <laughs> All you right. Much. So they Sometimes tie you the, up. The narrative matters, more. <laughs> but whatever it was, you had to. It was called drown proofing for a reason. The point of the story, <laughs> Michael, uh, is a struggle. It, it's well, Uh-oh. no, but that's good. It does bring, was, it, it, bring yeah, it back to struggle. Right. That's a part of what Georgia Tech has always been, and we struggle with that, by the way. Uh, about what we want to be, and particularly like as, as things go. But you, you sort of, how much can you be pushed without breaking? And you come out of the other end stronger, right? The, there's this saying we used to have when I was an undergrad. There which was Georgia Tech, building tomorrow the night before. Right. It <laughs> was this just kind of, kind of idea that that's you know, one. give me something impossible to do, and I'll do it in a couple of days because that's what I just spent the last four or five or six. This, uh, years that away.
2: ethos definitely stuck to you. Having now done a number of projects with you, you definitely will do it the night before. That's
1: right? not entirely true. There is nothing wrong with waiting until the last minute. The secret is knowing when the last minute is. Right. That's brilliant. That's brilliantly put.
2: Yeah. That. Yeah. That's that is a definite Charles statement that I am trying not to embrace. <laughs> and I
1: appreciate that because you helped move my last minute. Up.
0: <laughs> that's a social construct where you converge together what the definition of last minute is, and right. we, we we figure that out all together. In fact. MIT, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of universities have this, but MIT has like MIT time that yeah. everyone has always agreed together that, the, that there is such a concept, and everyone just keeps showing up like 10 to 15 to 20, depending on the department, late to everything. So there's like a weird drift that happens. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah,
1: we're five minutes. Or five minutes, in fact, the classes will say, you know, well, this is no longer true actually, but it used to be a class would start at eight, but actually, it started at 8:05, yeah. it ends at nine, actually, it ends at 8:55. Yeah, uh, everything's five minutes off, and nobody expects anything to start until five minutes after the half hour, whatever it is. Uh, it still exists, it <laughs> hurts my head. Well, let's rewind the clock
0: back to the 50s and 60s when you guys met. How did you? <laughs> I'm just kidding, I don't know, but what can you tell the story of, of how you met? So you've so like the internet and the world kinda knows you as 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 connected in some ways in terms of education of teaching the world. That's that's like the public facing thing. But how did you as human beings and as collaborators uh meet?
1: I think there's two stories. One is how we met and the other is how we fell got to know each other. <laughs> I'm not gonna say fall I'm not gonna say fell in love. I'm gonna say that we came to understand that we
2: had know, some we common Something. something, yeah. yeah it's are. funny because on the surface, I think we're we're different in a lot of ways, but there's something. Yeah, I mean, now that we are completely
1: There you go. Afternoons. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I will tell the story of how we met, and I'll let Michael tell the story of how we. Met. Okay. All right. Okay. So here's how we met. Um, I was already at at that point. It was AT and T Labs. There's a long, interesting story there, but anyway, I was there, and uh, Michael was coming to interview. He was a professor at Duke at the time, but decided for reasons that he wanted to be in New Jersey. Uh, and so that would mean uh, Bell Labs slash AT&T Labs. Uh, and we were doing the interview. Interviews are very much like academic interviews. Uh, and so I had to be there. Uh, we all had to meet with him afterwards and so on, one on one. But it was obvious to me that he was gonna be hired like no matter what because everyone loved him they were just talking about all the great stuff he did and oh he did this great thing and you had just won something at triple i think or maybe you got 18 papers in triple ai oh, i got the best paper award at AAA for the crossword stuff uh, the right exactly yeah. so that it all happened and everyone was going on and on and on about it. actually Satinder so was saying incredibly nice things about you. really yes so he can be very grumpy yes so that's but he very was, that's he, nice to hear he was grumpily saying very nice things oh that's you. that makes and, sense yeah, it does make sense so you know so it was going to come so why were we why was i meeting him i had something else i had to do i can't Remember what it was <laughs> yeah. it probably involved comics so he remembers
2: meeting me as inconveniencing his afternoon
1: so he yeah. came so eventually came to my office i was in the middle of trying to do something i can't remember what and he came and he sat down and for reasons that are purely accidental despite what michael thinks uh my yeah. desk at the time was set up in such a way that had sort of an l shape and the chair on the outside was always lower than the, the chair that i was in and you know, the, the kind of point was to... The only
2: reason I think that it was on purpose is because you told me it was on purpose. I don't remember that. Anyway,
1: the thing is, is that, you know, it kind you of... Have, gives... His
2: guest chair was really low so that he could... Yeah, you could look down at everybody.
1: Oh, the idea was just to simply create a nice environment that you were asking for a mortgage, and I was going to say no. That was the point. <laughs> it was a very simple idea here. Anyway, yeah. so we, we sat there and we just talked for a little while, and I think he got the impression that I didn't like him. It wasn't true. Strongly yeah. got that. Impression. The talk was really good. And the the he was talk by the way excitement. was terrible.
2: And after right after the talk, I said to my host Michael Kearns, who ultimately was my boss. I'm a
0: huge, fan. I'm a friend and a huge fan of Michael. Yeah. Yeah,
2: he Great. is a remarkable person. Um, I, 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 After my talk, I went into basketball.
1: the- um i basketball. Went... Racquetball, he's good at everything. No, basketball.
0: No, but basketball,
1: racquetball squash. too. No, squash. squash. Squash, squash, not racquetball. Yes, yeah, squash, right. which is not. Racquetball, yes. Squash, no. And I hope you, you hear that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you you oh, mean in terms as a game, not his skill level, because I'm pretty Both. sure he, he's- <laughs>
2: Right, there's some competitiveness there, but the point is that, that <laughs> it was like the middle of the day. I had full day of interviews. Like I met with people, but then in the middle of the day, I gave a job talk, and then um, and then there was going to be more interviews. But I I pulled Michael aside and I said, I think it's in both of our best interest if I just leave now, because <laughs> that was so bad that it'd just be embarrassing if I have to talk to any more people. Like you look bad for having invited me. Like it's just let's just forget this ever happened. So I don't think the talk went well.
1: It's one of the most Michael Lipman set of sentences I think I've ever heard. He did great, or at least everyone knew he was great. So maybe it didn't matter. I was there, I remember the talk and I remember him being very much the way I remember him now uh, on any given week. So it was good and we met and we talked about stuff. He thinks I didn't like him, but. Cause he was so grumpy. Must have been the chair thing. The chair
2: okay. thing and the low voice, I think. Like he obviously and that like
1: happy with that me. like slight like skeptical look.
0: Yes.
2: Like, Are you- I have no sure. idea what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> well, I probably didn't have any idea what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I liked him. He, was- he asked yeah. me
2: questions, I answered questions, I felt bad about myself. It was a normal day. <laughs> it, was- <laughs> it, was- <laughs> it was a normal day.
0: And <laughs> then he left. And then he left and that's, so that's how, you how met. we met. Can we take a and sli- then I got
2: hired and I was in the group.
0: Can we take a slight tangent on sure. that on this topic of it sounds like uh, maybe you could speak to the bigger picture. It sounds like you're quite self-critical. Who, Charles? No, you. Oh, I okay, think I so- can.
2: I can do better. I can do better. I'll, I'll try, try me again. I'll, I'll, I'll do
0: better. <laughs> I'm be so self-critical. I will I, I won't. Yeah, that, that was like a like a three out of ten response. To, uh, <laughs> so let's, let's try to work it up to five and six. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, Marvin Minsky said uh, on, on a video interview, something that the key to success in academic research is to hate everything you do. Mm.
2: Oh.
0: Uh, <laughs> for some reason- I
2: think I followed that because I hate everything <laughs> he's done. <laughs>
0: Uh, that's a good line. That's a six. <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's a keeper. But um, but uh, do you, do you, do you find that resonates with you at all in in how you think about talks and so on? Or, I would or, say it
1: differently. It's not. I, no, that, not really. That's such an MIT view of the world. though. <laughs> I, so I remember I I remember talking about this when uh, as a student. You know, you were basically told uh, I w- I will clean it up for the purposes of the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, my work is crap. My work is crap. My work is crap. My work is crap. Then you like go to a conference or something. And you're like, everybody else's work is crap. Everybody else's work yeah. is crap. And you feel better and better about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> relatively speaking. Yeah. And then you sort of keep working on it. I, I don't hate my work. That I'm, resonates I'm, with me. Yes. I've never hated my work, but I have, I have been dissatisfied with it. And I think being dissatisfied, being okay with the fact that you've taken a positive step, the derivative is positive. Mm. Maybe even the second derivative is positive that's important because that's a part of the the hope right but you have to but i haven't gotten there yet if that's not there that i haven't gotten there yet then you know it's hard to it's hard to move forward i think so i buy that which is a little different from hating everything that you do
2: yeah i mean there's there's things that i've done that i like better than i like myself so it's it's uh, separating me from the work essentially so mm-hmm. i think i i am very critical of myself but sometimes the work I'm really excited about, and sometimes I think it, it, it's Does kind of
1: that happen of right away? So I, I found the work that I've liked that I've done, most of it, I liked it in retrospect more when oh, I was far away from it in
2: time. I have to be fairly excited about it to get done.
1: No, excited at the time, but then happy with the result. or But years later, or even, I might go back, you know what? That actually that turned out terrible. to matter. Yeah, yeah. That turned out to matter. Or oh gosh, it turns out I've been thinking about that. It's actually influenced all the work that I've done since, without realizing it. Boy, because that guy was smart. Yeah, that that guy had a future. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I think he's a, going places. <laughs> I think there's So yeah, so I, I think there's something to it. I think there's something to the idea you've got to, you know, hate what you do, but it's not quite hate. It's just being unsatisfied. Mm. And different people motivate themselves differently. I don't happen to motivate myself with self-loathing. I happen to motivate she myself really with something else.
0: So you're able to sit back and be proud of, in retrospect, of the work you've done.
1: Well, and it's easier when you can connect it with other people, because then you can be proud of them. Proud of the people, yeah. And then the question then you is- you can
0: still safely hate yourself. Yeah, that's privately. right.
1: <laughs> it's win-win, Michael. Or at least win-lose, which is what you're looking for. <laughs> oh, wow. There's so many
0: brilliant yeah, lines in this. <laughs> there's
2: levels. Uh,
0: so how did you actually meet Meat? Yeah, my. So
2: my the way I think about it is because we didn't do much research together at AT&T. AT, no, but um, but then we all got laid off. So so that was. That By the way, sucked. sorry
0: to interrupt, but that was like one of the most magical places,
1: historically speaking. Yes. Of, they did not appreciate what they had.
0: And how do we? Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's a profound lesson in there too. Uh, how do we get it? Like, what was? Why was it so magical? Is just the coincidence of history. Or is there something special there about- There
2: were some really good managers and people who really believed in machine learning as this is going to be important. Um, let's get the the people who are thinking about this in creative and, and insightful ways and put them in one place and stir.
1: Yeah, but even beyond that, right? It's, it was it was Bell Labs at its heyday. And even when we were there, which I think was past its And to be clear,
2: day. he's gotten to be at Bell Labs. I never got to be at Bell Labs. Yeah, I, I was, joined after that.
1: Yeah, I showed up in 91 as a grad student. So I was there for a long time, um, every summer except. For so twice
2: years. I worked for companies that had just stopped being Bell Labs. Right, uh, Bellcore, Bellcore, and then AT&T Labs. So right. Bell Labs
0: was several locations, or for the for the research, or is it one, like is that, definitely that several. Jersey's oh, yeah. involved
1: somehow? Oh, they're they're, <laughs> they're all, all in Jersey. Yeah, they're all over the place, but, but they were in a couple places in. Jersey. Uh, Murray Hill was the, the Bell one. Labs place. Yeah. Um, so uh, you
2: you had you had an office in Murray Hill at one point in your career.
1: Yeah, I, and I, 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 I played ultimate frisbee on the cricket pitch at Bell Labs at Murray Hill, uh, and then it became at t Labs when it split off with loose during what we called uh, tri-vestiture, Are to you trivestiture. Better than
0: Michael Carnes at ultimate frisbee. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, but I think
2: that one's well, not boasting. I think that I think Charles plays a lot of ultimate, and I don't think Mike.
0: Mike
1: no, does. I was yes, but but that wasn't the point. The point is yes. I'm sorry. I'm finally oh better yes, to, yes, sorry. 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 Char- okay, but, I have
2: played on a, a championship-winning ultimate frisbee team. Or whatever, ultimate team, with Charles. So I know how good he is. He's really good. How good I was anyway when I was younger. But the thing is I know how young he was when he was younger. That's true. That is true. So but much younger than now you have, He's older now. Yes, yeah, I'm older. Now.
1: Michael a much was a much better basketball player than I was. Michael Kearns. <laughs> yes, no, not Michael. <laughs> I've Let's never be very clear to be about clear, that. I've
2: not played basketball with <laughs> you. So true. you don't know how terrible I am, but you have a probably pretty good guess.
1: And that you're not as good as Michael Kearns.
2: He's tall and
1: and he know, cared about athletic. it it's very athletic it's very good it's probably competitive i love hanging out, i love hanging out with michael anyway okay. but we were talking about something else although i no longer remember what it was what were we talking about oh about, bell, labs. I, bell labs but also labs so so uh this was kind of cool about what was magical about it the first thing you have to know is that bell labs was an arm of the government right because at&t was an arm of the government it was a monopoly uh and you know every month you paid a, a little thing on your phone bill which turned out was a tax for like all the research that Bell Labs was doing. And you know, they invented transistors and the laser and whatever else is that The Big they did. Bang or whatever uh, the,
2: the radi- cosmic background
1: radiation. Yeah, they did all that stuff. They had some amazing stuff with directional microphones, by the way. I got to go in this room um, where they, they, they had all these panels and everything and we would talk at one another and he'd move some panels around and then he would have me step two steps to the left and I couldn't hear a thing he was saying because nothing was bouncing off the walls. Mm. And then he would shut it all down and you could hear your heartbeat, yeah. which is deeply disturbing to hear your heartbeat. You can feel it. I mean, you can feel it now. There's just so much all this sort of noise around. Anyway, Bell Labs is about pure research. It was a university, in some sense, the purest sense of a university, but without students. So it was all the faculty working with one another and students would come in to learn. They would come in for three or four months you know, during the summer and they would go away. But it was just this kind of wonderful experience. I could walk out my door. In fact, I would often have to walk out my door and deal with Rich Sutton and Michael Kearns yelling at each other about whatever it is they were yelling about, uh, the proper way to prove something or another. And I could just do that. And Dave McAllister and eventually and Peter Stone and and all of these other people, including Satinder and then eventually Michael. And it was just a place where you could think thoughts. And it was okay, because so long as once every 25 years or so, somebody invented a transistor, it paid for everything else. You could afford to take the risk. And then when that all went away it became harder and harder and harder to justify it as far as the folks who were very far away were concerned. And there was such a fast turnaround among middle management um, on the AT&T side that you never had a chance to really build a relationship. At least people like us didn't have a chance to, to, to build a relationship. So when the diaspora happened, It was amazing, right? Yeah. Everybody left, and I I think everybody ended up at a a great place and made made a huge, made a continue to do really good work with with machine learning. But it was a wonderful place, and people will ask me, you know, what's the best job you've ever had? And as a professor, anyway, the answer that I I would give is, um, well, probably Bell Labs in some very real sense. And I would never have a job like that again because Bell Labs doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, Microsoft Research is great and Google does good stuff and you can pick IBM, you can tell if you want to, but Bell Labs was magical. It was around for, it was an important time and it represents a, a high watermark in, in basic research in is, the U.S.
0: Is there something you could say about the physical proximity and the chance collisions? Like oh. we live in this time of the mm-hmm. pandemic where everyone... Is maybe trying to see the silver lining and accepting the remote nature of things. Is is there one of the things that people like faculty uh, that, that I talk to miss is the the procrastination, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like the chance to like everything is about meetings that are supposed to be. Like, there's not a chance to just uh, you know talk about comic book or whatever, like go into
1: discussion that's totally pointless. So it's funny you say this because that's how we met. Met. It's exactly that. So I'll let Michael say that, but I'll just add one thing, which is just that uh, you know, research is a social process yeah. and it helps to have random social interactions, even if they don't feel social at the time. That's how you get things done. One of the great things about um, the AI lab when I was there, I don't quite know what it looks like now once they moved buildings, but we had entire walls that were whiteboards and people would just get up there and they would just write, And people would walk up and you'd have arguments and you'd explain things to one another. And you got so much out of the, Freedom to do that. You had to be okay with people challenging every frickin' word you said, which I mm-hmm. would sometimes find deeply irritating. But most of the time, it was it was quite useful. But the sort of pointlessness and the interaction was, in some sense, the point. At least for me. Yeah, I mean,
0: you. I, I think offline yesterday I mentioned Josh Tenenbaum, and he's very much. He put. He's uh, man. He's such an inspiration in in the child like way that he mm. pulls you in on any topic it doesn't even have to be about machine learning it could be, or or the, the brain he'll just pull you into a closest writable surface mm-hmm. which is uh still you can find whiteboards at MIT everywhere mm-hmm. and and just like uh like basically cancel all meetings and talk for a couple hours about some some uh, aimless thing and it it feels like the whole world the time space continuum kind of warps and that becomes the most important thing and then it's just it's so true it's, it's 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 definitely something worth missing in this in this world where everything's remote. There's some magic to the physical presence.
1: Whenever I wonder myself whether MIT really is as great as I remember it, I just go talk to Josh. Yeah, you
0: know that's funny. Is there's a few people in this world that carry the the best of what particular institutions stand for, right? Mm. And it's, uh
1: it's Josh. I mean, I I don't I my guess is he's unaware of this. That's the point. Yeah,
0: that the masters are not. Aware of their mastery, so
1: how did uh, you meet? <laughs> yes,
0: but but first a tangent. No, <laughs> uh, the, how did you meet me? So I'm not
2: sure what you were thinking, of, but I, my <laughs> when it started to dawn on me that maybe we had a longer term bond was after we all got laid off, and you had decided at that point that there that we were we were still paid, we were given an opportunity to like do a job search and kind of make a transition but it was clear that we were done and i would go to my office to work and you would go to my office to keep me from working yeah. that was that was my recollection of it uh, and you had decided that there was no really no point in working for the company because the comp- our relationship with the company was was done
1: yeah but remember i felt that way beforehand it wasn't about the company it was about the (laughs) set of people there doing really cool things and it always always been that way but we were working on something together
2: oh yeah yeah yeah, that's right oh so at the very end we all got laid off but then our boss came to our boss's boss came to us because our boss was michael kearns and he had jumped ship brilliantly like perfect timing like things like right before the ship was about to sink he was like gotta go (laughs) and 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 landed Perfectly, because Michael Kearns. Because Michael Kearns. And um, the leaving the rest of us to go like this is fine, and then it was clear that it wasn't fine, and and we were all toast. So we had this sort of long period of time, and but th- then our boss figured out, okay, wait, maybe we can save a couple of these people if we can have them do something really useful. Mm. And uh, the useful thing was we were going to make a. Basically, an automated assistant that could help you with your calendar. You could like tell it things and it would it would respond appropriately. It would just kind of integrate across all sorts of your personal information. And so me and Charles and Peter Stone mm-hmm. um, were this were set up as the crack team to actually solve this problem. Uh, other people maybe were too theoretical that they thought and and but we could actually get something done. So we sat down to get something done and there wasn't time and it wouldn't have saved us anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it all kind of went downhill. But the interesting, I think, coda to that is that our boss's boss is a guy named Ron Brockman. And he when he left AT, because we were all laid off, he went to DARPA, uh, started up a program there that became Kalo which is the program from which Siri sprung, which is a digital assistant that helps you with your calendar and a bunch of other things. Um, It really, you know, in some ways got its start with me and Charles and Peter trying to implement this vision that Ron Brockman had that he ultimately got implemented through his role at DARPA. So when I'm trying to feel less bad about having been laid off from what is possibly the greatest job of all time, um, I think about, well, we kind of, to help birth Siri, that's something.
1: Hmm. And then he did other things too. But the we got to spend a lot of time in his office and talk about- <laughs> We got to spend a lot of time stuff. in my office. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so then we went on our merry way. Everyone went to different places. Uh, Charles landed at Georgia Tech, which was uh, what he always dreamed he would do. And so um, that worked out well. Yeah. Um, I came up with a saying at the time, which is luck favors the Charles. <laughs> it's kind of like Luck favors the prepared, yeah, um, but yeah. Charles like like he'd wish something, and then it would basically happen just the way he wanted. It was it was inspirational to see things go that way. Things worked out, and we stayed in touch. And then um, I think it really helped when you were working on. I mean, you'd kept me in the loop for things like threads and mm-hmm. and the work that you were doing at Georgia Tech. But yeah. then when they were starting their online master's program, he knew that I was really excited about MOOCs and online teaching, and he's like. I have a plan. And I'm like, tell me your plan. He's like, I can't tell you the plan yet. Because they were deep in, in negotiations between Georgia Tech and Udacity to make this happen. And they didn't want it to leak. So Charles would kept teasing me about it, but wouldn't tell me what was actually going on. And eventually it was announced. And he said, I would like you to teach the machine learning course with me. I'm like, that can't possibly work. Um, but it was a great idea and it was, it was super fun. It was a lot of work to put together, but it was, it was really great. And Was,
0: was that the first time you thought about, first of all, was it the first time you got seriously into teaching? I mean, you know, I'm trying I was to get the timing right. Oh, so you, this is <laughs> already this is already after that. you jump to so like yeah. there's a little bit of jumping around in time. Yeah, sorry about uh, there's that. There's a pretty uh, big uh, jump in time. So like the MOOCs thing is, is, So Charles less, got to Georgia
2: Tech and he I mean maybe Charles, maybe this is a Charles. I got Tech like
1: in 2002.
2: He got to Georgia Tech in 2002.
1: Yeah.
2: And um but then and and worked on things like revamping the curriculum, the undergraduate curriculum so that it had some kind of semblance of modular structure because computer science was at the time Moving from a fairly narrow, specific set of topics to touching a lot of other parts of uh, of, of intellectual life, and the curriculum was supposed to reflect that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Charles played a big role in in kind of redesigning that.
1: And then, the, and, and for my and for my my labors, I ended up as uh, associate dean. Right. He got Somehow. to
2: become associate dean of in charge of educational stuff. This should be a
0: time. valuable lesson. If you're <laughs> good at something, uh, they will give you responsibility to do more of that thing. Well mm. until you don't show competence. Don't show competence right. if you, well, you if know, know what don't they say. responsibility
1: Here's what they say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the reward for good work is more work. Yeah. The reward for bad work is less work. Which, I don't know, depending upon what you're trying to do that week. One of those is better than the other. Well, but one you, of the
0: problems with the word "work," sorry to interrupt, sure. is that it seems to be an antonym in this particular language. We have the opposite of happiness, mm. but it <laughs> seems like they're they're like th- th- that's one of you know we talked about balance. It's uh it's always like work-life balance. It always rubbed me the wrong way it, as a, as a, t- a terminology. I know it's just words.
2: Right, the opposite of work is play, but. Yeah ideally work is play
1: oh i can't tell you how much time i'd, I'd spend certainly when I was a bell labs but except for a few very key moments uh as a professor i would do this too i would just say i cannot believe they're paying me to do this <laughs> um because it's fun it's something that i would i would do for a hobby if i could anyway uh so that what sort it of worked out Are you
0: sure you want to be saying that when, when this is being recorded <laughs> oh, no.
1: as a dean that is not true at all yeah. i need a raise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but i think here with with this that even though a lot of time passed You know, Michael and I talked almost every, well, we texted almost every day during the period. (laughs) Charles, at
2: one point, took me, there was the ICML conference, the machine learning conference was in Atlanta. I was the chair, the general chair of the conference. Charles was my publicity chair or something like that, or fundraising chair. Fundraising chair. Yeah. Um, But he decided it'd be really funny if he didn't actually show up for the conference in his own home city. Uh, So he didn't. But he did at one point pick me up at the conference in his Tesla and drove me to the Atlanta mall and forced me to buy an iPhone because he didn't like how it was to text with me and thought it would be better for him if I had an iPhone, the text would be somehow smoother. And it was. And it
1: was. And it is. And his life is better. And my life is better.
2: And so, yeah. yeah. But but it was, yeah, Charles forcing me to get an iPhone so that he could text me more efficiently. I thought that was an interesting moment.
1: It works for me. Anyway, so we kept talking the whole time, and then eventually we did the, we did the teaching thing, and it was great. And there's a couple of reasons for that, by the way. One is, I really wanted to do something different. Like, you've got mm-hmm. this medium here. People claim it can change things. What's a thing that you could do in this medium that you could not do otherwise? Um, besides edit, right? I mean, what could you do? And and being able to do something with another person was that kind of thing. It's very hard. To, I mean, you can take turns, but teaching together, That's having right. conversations, is very hard, right? So that was a cool thing. The second thing, give me an excuse to do more stuff with him.
2: Yeah, I always thought, I, he makes it sound brilliant. Um, and it, it is, I guess. But it's, at the time, it really felt like I've got a lot to do, Charles is saying, and it would be great if Michael could teach the course and I could just- Hang out. Yeah, just kind of coast on that.
1: Well, that's what the second class was more like that.
0: Because the second, the second class was, was explicit. Like the se- that. But well, the first
1: class, it was at least half. Yeah, so but I so the, all the structure, the structure I that structure you were, that once again
0: up. letting the the facts get in the
1: way. <laughs> have <a> good story. <laughs> have <a> good story. <laughs> I should
0: just let Charles
1: talk But, that's, it, but that's the facts as he saw. But it, so that was, that was kind <laughs> of true. Your 70, facts. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of true for 7642, which is the reinforcement learning class, because that was really his class. You started with the reinforcement learning? No, we or started with, I did machine the intro machine learning, 7641, which is supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning and decision-making, cram all that in there, the kind of assignments that we talked about earlier. And then eventually, about a year later, we did a follow-on 7642, which is reinforcement learning and decision-making. The first class was based on something I'd been teaching at that point for well over a decade. And the second class was based on something Michael had been teaching. Actually, I learned quite a bit teaching that class with him, uh, but he drove most of that. But the first one I drove most, of it was all my material. Although I had stolen that material originally from slides I found online from Michael, who had originally stolen that material from, I guess, slides he found online, probably from Andrew Moore, because the jokes were the same anyway. At least some of the, <laughs> at least when I found the slides, some of the Is stuff was there. Just, yes, every machine learning class taught in the early 2000s stole from Andrew Moore. A
2: particular joke or, or two.
1: The, at least the structure. Now okay. I did, and he did actually, a lot more with reinforcement learning and such, and game theory and those kinds of things. But, you know, we all sort of built. In the research you know, world. No, no, no. No, in, I mean in, in, the, in teaching that class. The, the oh. coverage
2: was different than
1: than what than other people were Most College. people were just doing supervised learning and maybe a little bit of you know clustering and whatnot. But we took it all the way to a lot of it just and comes and from Tom theory. Mitchell's book. Oh no, yeah. Except well, half of it comes from Tom Mitchell's book, right? But the other half doesn't. This is this is why it's all readings, right? Because certain things weren't invented when Tom. Yeah, wrote
2: Yeah, okay, it, that. that's true.
1: Right, uh, but it was it was quite good. But there's a reason for that besides you know, just, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do something new and I wanted to do something with him, which is a realization, which is despite what you might believe, he's an introvert and I'm an introvert or I'm on the edge of of being an introvert anyway. But both of us, I think, um, enjoy the energy of the crowd, right? There's something about talking to people and bringing them into whatever we find interesting that is empowering, energizing or whatever. And I found the idea of Staring alone uh, at a computer screen and then talking off of materials, less inspiring than I wanted it to be. Uh, and to I, a, I had in
2: fact done a MOOC for Udacity on algorithms, and it was a week in a dark room, talking at the screen, mm-hmm. uh, writing on the little pad, and I didn't know this was happening. But they had watched the, the the crew had watched some of the videos while you know like in the middle of this, and they're like, something's wrong. You're you're sort of shutting down. Um, and I think a lot of it was I'll make jokes and no yeah. one would laugh. Yeah. And I felt like the crowd hated me. Now, of mm-hmm. course, there was no crowd. Right. So like it didn't, wasn't rational. Yeah, But it's little each time I tried it and I got no reaction, it just was taking the, the, the energy
1: out of my performance out this of my a, presentation such a fantastic metaphor for grad school anyway by working together <laughs> yeah. we could play off each other and have a and, and have and it keep the energy time.
2: up because right. you can't you with you can't let your guard down for a moment with charles he'll just he'll just
1: overpower you. I have no idea what you're talking about. But we would work really well together. I thought and we knew each other. So I knew that we could we could sort of make it work. Plus I was the associate dean, so they had to do what I <laughs> told them to do. So we had to do that we had to make it work. And so it worked out very well, I thought. Um, well enough that we with great
2: power comes great
1: power. That's right. And we became smooth and curly and uh, that's when we, we we did the the um, the uh, overfitting thriller video.
2: Yeah, we t- yeah yeah that's a yeah. thing.
1: So what, okay, production. can we just uh, like like uh, smooth and
0: curly? where was that? So come okay, from? so
2: the, and then it happened. It was completely spontaneous. These I are the
0: nicknames you go by.
2: Yeah,
1: so, or, so uh, he, it's we what were, the we were, students call us. He
2: was he was lecturing. So the, the way that we structure the lectures is one of us is the lecturer and one of us is basically the student. And so the, he was lecturing on- The
1: lecturer prepares all the materials, theory. comes up with the quizzes, and then the student comes in not knowing anything. So it's you know, just like being on campus. Yeah. Uh, and I was doing game theory in particular, yeah. uh, the Prisoner's Dilemma. Prisoner's
2: Dilemma. And so he needed to, to set up a little Prisoner's Dilemma grid. So he drew it and I could see what he was drawing. And the, the Prisoner's Dilemma consists of two players, two parties. So he decided he, he would make little cartoons of the two of us. And so there was uh, two criminals, right, that were deciding whether or not to rat each other out. Um, one of them he drew as you know a circle with a smiley face and a kind of goatee thing, mm-hmm. smooth head. And the other one with all sorts of curly hair. And he said, this is smooth and curly. I said, smooth and curly? He said, no, no, smooth with a V. It's very important that it have yeah. a V." And that and, stuck. I actually watched that video. And then the, that students, really, they, the yeah. students really took to that. Like they've really, they found that relatable.
1: He started yeah. singing Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, those those, na- those names stuck.
2: So that, yeah. so we now have a video series The an episode, our kind of first actual episode should be coming out today. Um smooth and curly on video, okay. where the two of us discuss uh West episodes of Westworld. Where we watch Westworld and we're like, huh, what does this say about computer science and AI?
1: <laughs> and we've never we we did not watch it. I mean, I know it's on season three or whatever. We haven't yeah. as of this recording, it's on season three. Yeah. And uh, watch now two episodes total. Yeah, I think I watched three.
0: What do what do you think about Westworld?
1: Two episodes in. So sure. I can tell okay, you well, so far, yeah.
2: I'm just guessing what's gonna happen next. It seems like bad things are gonna happen with the robots uprising. It's a Border lot of- alert.
1: St- So I, I have not, I have not, I mean, you know, I vaguely remember a movie existing, so I assume it's, it's related to that, but- That was more my time than your time, Charles. That's right, because you're much older than I am. I think the important thing here is that uh, it's narrative, right, it's all about telling a story. That's the whole driving thing. But the idea that they would give these reveries, that they would make people- They would Let make them mem- remember- Remember the awful things that happened. Who could possibly think that was going I to... I mean, I don't know. I've only seen the first two episodes or maybe the third one. I think I've only seen the You know the first
2: what episode. it was? You know what the problem is? What? That the robots were actually designed by Hannibal Lecter. That's true. <laughs> they, they were. So, like, what do you think is going to happen? Anyway, Bad it's, thing.
1: It's clear that things are happening and characters are being introduced and we don't yet know anything, but... Still, I was just struck by how it's all driven by narrative and story. And there's all these implied things like programming. Hap- the programming interface is talking to them about what's going on in their heads, which is both, I mean, artistically, it's probably useful to film it that way. But think about how it would work in real life. That just seems very crazy. But there was, we, we saw in the second episode, there's a screen. You could see things They that, were wearing sort of like stayed in the webs. world. It was quite... Interesting to just kind of ask this question so far. I mean, I assume it veers off into Never Never Land at some point, but- uh so we well, the, don't
0: know. The, we can't answer that question. I'm also a, a fan of a guy named Alex Garland. He's a director of Ex Machina. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he is the first. I wonder if Kubrick was like this, actually. Is he like studies what would it take to program an AI systems? Like he's he's curious enough to go into that direction. Mm. Uh, on the Westworld side, I felt- there was more emphasis on the narratives than like actually asking like computer science questions yeah. like how would you build this how would you
1: uh, and, and how would you debug it I still think de- to me that's the <laughs> uh, the that's key issue they were terrible debuggers, yeah.
2: Well, they said specifically, so we make a change and we put it out in the world and that's bad because something terrible could happen. I'm like if you're putting things out in the world and you're not sure whether something terrible is going to happen, you're probably, your process is probably. I just declined.
1: feel like there should have been someone whose sole job it was, was to walk around and poke his head in and say, what could possibly go wrong? Just over and over again.
0: <laughs> I would have loved if there was an, and I did watch a lot more and I'm not giving anything away. I would have loved it if there was like an episode where like like the new intern is like debugging Uh a new model or something Mm -hmm. and like it just keeps failing and and they're like all right and then it's more turns into like a a episode of silicon valley or something like that versus uh versus like this ominous ai systems that are constantly like threatening the the fabric of this world that's been created yeah
1: yeah and you know the other the this this reminds me of something that so I agree with that. That actually be very cool, at least, well, for the small percentage <laughs> of people who care about debugging systems. But the other thing is- <laughs> Debugging the series. <laughs> yeah, it falls into, the think of the sequels, fear of the debugging. Oh my gosh. And Anyway, so- It's I, I a nightmare think- show. It's a, it's a horror movie. <laughs> I think that's where we lose people. By the way, early on is the people who either decide, either figure out debugging or think debugging is terrible. The, this is oh, part where of we struggle. lose people in computer science. This, this is part of <laughs> yeah, the struggle yeah, yeah, yeah. versus suffering, right? You you get through it and you kind of get the skills of it, or you are just like this is dumb and this is a dumb way to do anything. And mm-hmm. I think that's when we lose people. But um, I, well, I'll leave it at that. But I, I think that mm-hmm. I think that that there's something really, really neat about framing it that way. But what I don't like about all of these, pro, all of these things, and I love Tex Machina, by the way. Although the, yeah. the ending was very
0: depressing. Um, well, okay, uh, one of the things I have to talk to Al, uh, Alex about, he says that the thing that nobody noticed mm-hmm. he put in is uh, the a, a, at the end. Spoiler alert: the the robot turns and looks at the camera and smiles right. briefly. And to him, he thought that his definition of passing the touring the general version of the touring test or the consciousness test is smiling for no one hmm oh like like not oh you know it's it's like the chinese room kind of experiment it's not always trying to act for others right but just on your own being able to have a relationship with the actual experience and just like take it in I don't know he
1: said like nobody noticed I mean the, I, the magic of it i have this vague feeling that I remember the smile but now you now you just put the memory in my head, so yeah. probably yeah. not. But I do think that that's interesting. Although by looking at the camera, you are smiling for the audience, right? You're breaking yeah. the fourth wall, yeah. it seems. I mean, well, that's a that's, that's a, a limitation one. of the medium, but I, I like that idea. But here's the problem I have yeah. with all of those movies, mm-hmm. all of them, um, is that, but I know why it's this way, and, and I enjoy those movies, um, and Westworld, is uh, it sets up the problem of AI as succeeding and then having something we cannot control but it's that's not the bad part of AI. The bad part of AI is the stuff we're living through now, right? It's the mm-hmm. using the data to make decisions that are terrible. It's not the intelligence that's going to go out there and surpass us and, you know, take over the world or, you know, lock us into a room to starve to death slowly um, over multiple days. It's instead uh the the tools that we're building that are allowing us to make the terrible decisions we would have less efficiently made before, right? You know, computers are very good at making us. More efficient, including being more efficient at doing terrible things. And and that's the part of the AI we have to worry about. It's not the, you know, true intelligence that we're going to build sometime in the future, probably long after we're around. Um, but you know, I, I I I just I think that whole framing of it sort of misses the point, even though it is inspiring. And I was inspired by those ideas, right? That I got into this in, in part because I wanted to build something like that. Philosophical questions are interesting to me, but but you know that's not where the terror comes from the terror comes from the everyday and you can construct situate it's in, in the subtlety of the interaction between ai
0: and the human like with uh, with social networks all the stuff you're doing with uh interactive artificial intelligence mm-hmm. but you know i i feel like hal 9000 came a little bit closer to that when in 2001 space odyssey because it felt like uh, a personal assistant you know it felt like closer to the ai systems we have today and mm-hmm. and the and the real things we might actually encounter which is over relying uh on in some fundamental way on our like dumb assistants or on social networks like over offloading too much of us onto uh, uh you know onto things that require internet and power and so on and thereby becoming powerless as a uh Standalone entity, and then when that thing starts to misbehave in some subtle way, it creates a lot of problems. And those problems are drama- dramatized when you're in space because mm-hmm. you don't have a way
1: to walk away. Well, but- as the man said, um, once you once we started making the decisions for you, it stopped being your world, right? That's the Matrix, Michael. In case you don't, I didn't you catch don't, it. You Thank don't you. remember. But on the other hand, I, mean I could say no, because isn't that what we do with people anyway? You know this kind of the shared intelligence that is humanity mm. is relying on other people constantly to I mean we we hyper specialize right as individuals we're still generally intelligent we make our own decisions in a lot of ways, but we leave most of this up to other people and that's perfectly fine and by the way, everyone doesn't necessarily share our goals sometimes they seem to be quite against us sometimes we make decisions that others would see as against our own interests and yet we somehow manage it manage to survive I'm not entirely sure why an AI would actually make that worse or even different, really.
0: You mentioned the matrix. Hmm. Do you think we're living in a simulation?
1: It does
2: feel like a thought game more than a real scientific question.
0: Well, I'll tell you why. Like, I think it's an interesting thought experiment to see what you think. From okay. a computer science perspective, it's a good experiment of how difficult would it be to create a sufficiently realistic world that us humans would enjoy being in it, it that that's almost like I mean, if we're living in
2: a simulation, then I don't believe that we were put in the simulation. I believe that the, it's just physics playing out and we came out of that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think.
0: So you think you have to build the universe? I think that all the, the universe
2: things? itself, we can think of that as a simulation. And in fact, what I try, sometimes I try to think about to understand what it's like for a computer to start to think about the world. I try to think about the world. Um, Things like quantum mechanics, where it doesn't feel very natural to me at all. Um, And it really strikes me as, I don't understand this thing that we're living in. It it has, there's weird things happening in it that don't feel natural to me at all. Now, if you want to call that as the result of a simulator, okay, I'm fine with that. But like I don't- There's
1: the bugs in the simulation. There's the bugs. I mean, the interesting thing about simulation (laughs) is that it, it might have bugs. I mean that—that's the thing that I. The, the but there wouldn't the be bugs for life. the people
2: in the simulation. They're just—that's just reality. Unless you were aware enough
1: to know that there was a bug. But I—I I think back you know, to the Matrix. Yeah, the way you put <laughs> the question. I don't though, think
2: that we live in a in a simulation created for us. I okay, I would say that.
1: I think that's interesting. I've actually never thought about it that way. I mean, you—the way you asked the question though—is you know, could you create a world that is enough for us humans? It's an interestingly sort of self-referential question because. The beings that created the simulation probably have not created the simulation that's realistic for them. But we're in the simulation and so it's realistic for us. So we could create a simulation that is fine for the people in the simulation, as it right. were. That would not necessarily be fine for us as the creators of the simulation.
0: But well, you can you can forget, I yeah. mean if when you go into the if you play video games in virtual reality you can, if it was some suspension of disbelief yeah. or, or whatever, yeah. uh, it becomes you, the world. It yeah. becomes the world, even like in brief moments. You you forget that another world exists. Hmm. I mean, that's what like good stories do. They pull you in. Hmm. The question is: Is it possible to pull? You know, our brains are limited. Is it possible to pull the brain in to where we actually stay in that world longer and longer and longer and longer? And like not only that, but we don't want to leave. And so, especially this is the key thing about the de- developing brain is if we journey into that world early on in life, often.
1: How would you even know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I, I, but like from a video game design perspective, from a Westworld perspective, it's, I think, I think it's an important thing for even uh, computer scientists to think about because it's clear that video games are getting much better. And, virtual reality, although it's been ups and downs, just like artificial intelligence, it feels like virtual reality will be here in a very impressive form if we were to fast forward a hundred years into the future in a way that might change society fundamentally. Like if I were to, I'm very limited in predicting the future as all of us are, Mm -hmm. but if I were to try to predict like in which way I'd be surprised to see the world a hundred years from now, it'd be that, or impressed, it'd be that we're all no longer living in this physical world, that we're all living in a virtual world. You really
1: need to read Calculating God by Sawyer. It's a, you'll you'll read it in a night. It's a very easy read, but it's a, assuming you're that kind of reader, but it's a, it's a good story, and it's kind of about this, but not in a way that it appears. And I uh, really, enjoyed the thought experiment um, yeah, I think it's pretty sure it's Robert Sawyer but anyway he's he's apparently Canadian's top science fiction writer which is why the story mostly takes place in Toronto uh, but it's a it's a very good uh, it's a very good sort of story that that sort of uh, imagines this very different kind of simulation hypothesis sort of thing from say um, the egg for example you know you know I'm talking about the short story um, by the guy who did the Martian who wrote *The Martian*?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know him, *The Martian*. The book? Matt Damon. No, <laughs> the book. So we had this whole discussion that Michael doesn't uh, doesn't partake in this exercise of reading. Yeah, He doesn't seem to like it, which seems very strange to me, considering how much he has to read. Yeah. I read all the time. I used to read ten books every week when I was a, when I was in sixth grade or whatever. I was a lot of it science fiction, a lot of it, a lot of it history. But I I love to read. But anyway, you should recalculating God. I think you'll you'll. It's very easy to read, like I said, and I think you'll enjoy sort of the ideas that it presents.
0: Yeah, I think the the thought experiment is, is quite interesting. Uh, f- w- one thing I've noticed about people growing up now, I mean, we'll we talk about social media, but video games is a much bigger bigger, and bigger and bigger part of their lives. Right. And, the, and the video games have become much more realistic. I think it's possible that the three of us are not... Uh, Mm-hmm. maybe the two of you are not familiar exactly with the numbers we're talking about here.
1: I, I think the well, number of people it's bigger than movies, right? It's 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 huge. I used to do a lot of the narrative uh, computational narrative stuff.
2: I understand that economists can actually see the impact of video games on the labor market. That that there are there there's fewer young men of a certain age participating in like paying jobs than you'd expect and, and that they trace it back to video games.
1: I mean, the problem with Star Trek was not warp drive or teleportation. It was the holodeck. Mm. Like, if you have the holodeck, that's it, you, <laughs> that's it. You go in the holodeck, you never come out. I mean, yeah. it just never made, once I saw that, I thought, okay, well, so this is the end of humanity as we know it, right? They've been yeah. in the holodeck.
0: Because that feels like the singularity, not some AGI or whatever, It's some possibility to go into another world mm. that, can be artificially made better
1: than this one.
3: Mhm.
1: And slowing it down so you live forever or speeding it up so you appear to live forever or making the decision of when to die. And then m- most
0: of us will just be old people on the porch yelling at the kids these days in their virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Worlds.
2: <laughs> but they won't hear us because they've got headphones on.
0: So, I mean, Rewinding back to MOOCs, can, is there lessons that you've uh, speaking to kids these days? There you go. Uh, <laughs> that was a transition. That's, that was fantastic. All right, exactly. I'll edit.
1: I'll fix it in post. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's Charles's
0: it.
2: favorite phrase.
1: Fix it in post. Fix it yeah, in we'll post. Fix it in post. It said all when we were recording all the time. Whenever the editor didn't like something or whatever, I would say, "We'll fix it in post." <laughs> he hated that. Yeah, he hated that more than anything. it was Charles's
2: way of saying, "I'm not going to do it again." <laughs> You know, you're on your own for this one.
1: But it always (laughs) got fixed in post. Exactly. So uh,
0: (laughs) is there something you've learned about, I mean, it's interesting to talk about MOOCs. Is there something you've learned about the process of education, about thinking about the present? I think there's two lines of conversation to be had here, is the future of education in general Mm -hmm. that you've learned about. And more
1: presciently is the education in the times of COVID. Yeah. Well, the second thing in some ways matters more than the first, um, For at least in my head. for the, Not just because it's happening now, but because um, I think it's, it's reminded us of a lot of things. Coincidentally, today, there's an article out by a good friend of mine um, who's also a professor at Georgia Tech, but more importantly, a writer and editor at The Atlantic, I named Ian Bogos. Um, and the title is something like, uh, Americans will sacrifice anything for the college experience. Uh, and it's about why we went back to college, and why people wanted us to go back to college. And it's not, you know, greedy presidents trying to get the last dollar from someone. It's because they want to go to college. And what they're paying for is not the classes. What they're paying for is the college experience. It's not the education. It's being there. I've believed this for a long time, uh, that we continually make this mistake of People want to go back to college as being people want to go back to class. They don't. They want to go back to campus. They want to move away from home. They want to do all those things that people experience. Um, it's a rite of passage. It's a, it's a identity, if I can, if I can steal some of, um, Ian's words here. And I think that's right. And I think what we've learned through COVID is. It has made it, the disaggregation was not the disaggregation of the education from the place, univer, the university place, and that you can get the best anywhere you want to. In terms of there's lots of reasons why that is not necessarily true. The disaggregation is having it shoved in our faces that the reason to go, again, that the reason to go to college is not necessarily to learn. It's to have the college experience. And that's very difficult for us to accept, even though we behaved that way, most of us, when we were undergrads. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us didn't go to every single class. We learned and we got it and we look back on it and we're happy we had the learning experience as well, obviously, particularly us, because this is the the kind of thing that we do. And my guess is that's true of of the vast majority of your audience. But that doesn't mean the I'm standing in front of you telling you this is the thing that people are excited about Hmm. um, and that's why they want to be there, primarily why they want to be there. So to me, that's what COVID has forced us to deal with. Um, even though I think we're still all in deep denial about it um, and hoping that it'll go back to that. And I think about 85% of it will. We'll be able to pretend that that's really the way it is again, and we'll forget the lessons of this. But (laughs) technically what will come out of it, or technologically what will come out of it, is a way of providing a more uh, dispersed experience through online education and these kinds of, of remote things that we've learned. And we'll have to come up with new ways to engage them in the experience of college, which includes not just the parties or the whatever kids do, but the learning part of it so that they actually come out four or five or six years later with having actually, having actually learned something. So um, I think the world will be radically different afterwards. And I think technology will matter for that, just not in the way that the people who were building the technology originally imagined it would be. And I think this would have been true even without COVID, but COVID has accelerated that uh, reality, So it's happening in two or three years or five years as opposed to 10 or 15.
2: That was an amazing answer that I did not understand. So to, it was passionate and, and shots fired. But I, but I don't know. I just didn't no. I'm not trying to criticize it. I think I'm I, I don't think I'm getting it. So you mentioned disaggregation. Mm-hmm.
1: So what's that? Well, so, you know, the power, the power of technology that if you go on the West Coast and hang out long enough is all about, we're going to disaggregate these things together, the books from the bookstore, you know, that kind of a thing. And then suddenly Amazon controls the universe, right? And technology is a disruptor, right? And people have been predicting that for uh, higher education for a long time, but certainly in the, So is this, the is this most.
2: the sort of idea like students can aggregate on a campus someplace and then take classes over the network anywhere.
1: Yeah, this is what people thought was going to happen, or at least people claimed okay. it was going to happen, right? That you know, because
2: my daughter is essentially doing that now. She's on one campus, but learning in a different
1: campus. Sure, and COVID makes that possible, right? Yeah. Um, or COVID makes that um legal, all but avoidable, <laughs> right? All but but, avoidable. but the idea originally was that you know you and I were going to create this machine learning class, and it was going to be great, and then no one else would be the machine never learning class everyone takes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That was never going to happen. But you know, something like that, you. But can I feel see like you happened. didn't
2: address that. So why 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 is it that why? Why?
1: I don't think that will be the thing that happens. So the
2: college experience, maybe I, maybe I missed what the college experience was. I thought it was peers, like people hanging around. A large
1: part of that... it is peers. Uh, well, it's peers and independents. Yeah, but well, none of at that, least rec- that's...
2: No, you can do classes online for all of that.
1: No, 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 no because no, no, we're social people, right? So when would be take the, the classes, room.
2: that also has to be part of an experience.
1: It's like, in a context and the context is the university. And by the I way, see. it actually matters that Georgia Tech really is different from Brown.
2: I see, because then students can choose the kind of experience they think is going to be best for them. Okay, I
1: I think we're giving too much agency to the students in making an informed decision. Okay. But the truth, but yes, they will make choices and they will have different experiences. And some of those choices will be made for them. Some of them will be choices they're making because they think it's this, that, or the other. I just don't want to say, I don't want to give the idea- It's not
2: homogenous.
1: Yes, it's certainly not homogenous, right? I mean, Georgia Tech is different from Brown. Brown is different from pick your favorite state school in Iowa. Iowa State, okay? Which I guess is my favorite state school in Iowa. Sure. Uh, but, you know, these are all different. They have different contexts. And a lot of those contexts are, they're about history, yes, but they're also about the location of where you are. Mm. Uh, they're about the larger group of people who are around you, whether you're in um, Athens, Georgia, and you're basically the only thing that's there as a university, you're responsible for all the jobs, or whether you're at Georgia State University, which is an urban campus um, where you're surrounded by, you know, six million people in uh, your campus where it ends and begins in the city, ends and begins, we we don't know.
0: It, it actually matters
1: whether you're a small campus or a large campus. I mean, these things yeah, matter. Wh- why is it that
0: if you go to Georgia Tech, you're like forever proud of that and you like say that to people at dinner, like bars and whatever? And if you, not to, you know, if you get, a degree in an online university
1: somewhere, you don't, that's not a thing that comes up at a bar. Well, it's funny you say that. So the students who take our online masters by several measures are more loyal than the students who come on campus, certainly for the master's degree. The reason for that, I think, and you'd have to ask them, but based on my conversations with them, I, I feel comfortable saying this, is because this didn't exist before. I mean, we talk about this online master's and that it's reaching you know 11,000 students, and that's an amazing thing, and we're admitting everyone we believe who can succeed. We've got a 60% acceptance rate. It's amazing, right? It's also a $6,600 degree. The entire degree costs $6,600 or $7,000, depending on how long you take, uh, dollar degree, as opposed to $46,000 that costs you to come on campus. Um, so that feels, and I can do it while I'm working full time, and I've got a family and a mortgage and all these other things. So it's an opportunity to do something you wanted to do, but you didn't think was possible without giving up two years of your life, as well as all the money and everything else in the life that you could built. So I think we created something that's had an impact, but importantly, we gave a set of people opportunities they otherwise didn't feel they had. So I think people feel very loyal about that. And my biggest piece of evidence for that, besides the surveys, is that we have somewhere north of 80 students, might be 100 at this point, who graduated, but come back in TA for this class for basically minimum wage even though they're working full time because they believe they believe in in sort of having that opportunity and they want to be a part of something. Now will they will generation 3 feel this way? 15 years from now will people have that same sense? I don't know. But right now they they kind of do. And so it's not the online it's it's a matter of feeling as if you're a part of something. Right? We're all very tribal. Yeah. Right? Um and I think there's something very Tribal about being a part of something like that. Being on campus makes that easier. Going through a shared experience makes that easier. It's harder to have that shared experience if you're alone looking at a computer screen. We can create ways to make that. But is it possible? True. It is possible. That, that's
0: the question. Is it still is the intuition to me, and it was at the beginning when I saw something like the online master's program, is that this is going to replace universities?
1: And it won't replace universities. But it but will. like where is it? Why? Because it's living in a different part of the ecosystem, right? The people who are taking it are already adults. They've they've gone through their undergrad experience. They're, I think their their goals have shifted from when they were seventeen. Um, they have other things that, that are going. Right. But it does do something really important, something very social and very important, right? You, you know this whole thing about um, you know, don't build the sidewalks, just leave the grass, and the students will or the people will walk, and you put the sidewalks where they create paths. This is kind that's of thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, their architects who apparently believe that's the right way to do things the metaphor here is that we 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 created this environment we didn't quite know how to think about the social aspect but you know we didn't have time to solve all do all the social engineering right um the students did it themselves they created um you know these groups like on Google Plus there were like 30 something groups created in the first year because Somebody had these Google Plus. Um, and they created these groups and they divided up in ways that made sense. We live in the same state, or we're working on the same things, or we have the same background, or whatever. And they created these social things. We sent them t-shirts and they were, we have all these great pictures of students putting on their t-shirts as they travel around the world. I climbed to this mountaintop, I'm putting this t-shirt on, I'm a part of this. So they were they were part of them. They created these social environment on top of the social network and the social media that existed uh, to create this sense of belonging and being a part of something. They found a way to do it, Mm -hmm. right? And I think they had other, it scratched an itch that they had, Mm -hmm. but they had scratched some of that itch that might have required they'd be physically in the same place long before, right? So I think, yes, it's possible, and it's more than possible, it's necessary. But I don't think it's going to replace the university As we know it, the university as we know it will change. But there's just a lot of power in the kind of rite of passage and kind of going off to yourself. Now, maybe there'll be some other rite of passage that'll happen. Right. That's the question. You can
0: separate. So the the university is such a fascinating uh, mess of things. So just even the faculty position is a fascinating mess. Like it doesn't make any sense. It it stabilized itself. Mm -hmm. But like, why are the world class researchers spending? A huge amount of time of their time teaching and service. Like you're doing like three jobs. Yeah. And, and I mean, it turns, it's maybe an accident of history or human evolution. I don't know. It seems like the people who are really good at teaching are often really good at research. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a parallel there, but like it doesn't make any sense that you should be doing that. At the same time, it also doesn't seem to make sense that y- your place where you party. <laughs> is the same place where you go to learn calculus or whatever. The, uh, but it's a safe space. Safe Relative, space for everything.
1: Yeah, relatively speaking, it's a safe space. Now, by the way, I feel the need very strongly to point out that we are living in a very particular weird bubble, right? Most people don't go to college. And by the way, the yes. ones who do go to college, they're not 18 years old, right? They're like 25 or something. I forget the numbers. You know, the places where we've been, where we are, uh, they look like whatever we think the traditional movie version of universities are. But for most people, it's not that way at all. By the way, most people who drop out of college, it's entirely for financial reasons, right? So, you know, we are talking about a particular experience. Um, And so for that set of people, which is very small, but larger than it was a decade or two or three or four certainly ago, uh, I don't think that will change. My concern which I think is kind of implicit in some of these questions, is that somehow we will divide the world up further, Uh, into the people who get to have this experience and get to have the network and they sort of benefit from it and everyone else, while increasingly requiring that they have more and more credentials in order to get a job uh, as a barista, right? You got to have a master's degree in order to to work at Starbucks. Um, We're going to force people to do these things, but they're not going to get to have that experience. And there'll be a small group of people who do who continue to, you know, positive feedback loop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I worry a lot about that, which is why for me, and by the way, here's an answer to your question about faculty, which is why to me that you have to focus on access and the mission. I think the reason, whether it's good, bad, or strange, I mean, I agree, it's strange, but I think it's useful to have the faculty member, particularly at large R1 universities where we've all had experiences, uh, that um, you tie what they get to do and with the fundamental mission of the university mm-hmm. and let the mission drive. What I hear when I talk to faculty is they love their PhD students because they're, creating, they're reproducing basically, right? And it lets them do their research and yeah. multiply. But they understand that the mission is the undergrads. And so they will do it without complaint, mostly, because it's a part of the mission and why they're here. And they have experiences with it themselves. And the, it was important to get them get them where they were going. The people who tend to get squeezed in that, by the way, are the, the master students, right? Who are neither the PhDs who are like us nor the undergrads. We we have already bought into the idea that we that we have to teach, though. That's increasingly changing. Anyway, I, I think tying that mission in really matters, and it gives you a way to unify people around making it an actual higher calling. Education feels like more of a higher calling to me than than even research, because education you cannot treat it as a hobby if you're going to do it well. But but
0: that's the that's the pushback on this whole system is that you should education be a full-time job, right? And like it almost
1: like research is a distraction from that. Yes, but, although I think most of our colleagues, many of our colleagues would say that research is the job and education is the distraction. Right,
0: but that's the beautiful dance. It seems to be that that tension in itself is, seems to work, seems to bring out the best in uh, in the faculty,
1: or like the I, I ones I've done. So. But I will point out two things. One thing I'm gonna point out, and the other thing I want Michael to point out, because I think Michael is much closer to, the, to, the, to sort of the, the ideal professor. In some sense than I am. Well, he's uh, you're the dean. platonic sense yeah. of a professor. Yeah, I don't, I don't know Michael what he meant the, by that, but,
2: but he's and, he is a dean, so he has a different experience.
1: I'm giving him I'm giving him time to think of the profound thing he's going to. say. good. But let me <laughs> let me point this <laughs> out, which is that we have lecturers in the College of Computing where I am. Uh, there's ten or twelve of them, depending on how you count, as opposed to the ninety or so tenure track faculty. Those ten lecturers who only teach. Well, they don't only teach. They also do service. They some of them do research as well, but primarily they teach. They teach fifty percent, over fifty percent of our credit hours, and we teach everybody, right? So they're doing, not just they're doing more than eight times the work of the tenure track faculty, um, by just if more closer to nine or ten, and that's including our grad courses, right? So they're doing this, they're teaching more, they're touching more more than anyone, and they're beloved for it. I mean, so we recently had a survey. We, you do these alumni, everyone does these alumni surveys. You hire someone from the outside to do whatever. And, and I was really struck by something. You saw these really cool numbers. I'm, I'm not going to talk about it because, you know, it's all internal confidential stuff. But one thing I will talk about is there was a single question we asked our alumni. these are people who graduated, you know, born in the 30s and 40s, all the way up to people who graduated last week, right? Um, well, last yeah, graduate, semester. Okay, good. Um, time yeah. flies. Yeah, we time really flies. <laughs> uh, And <laughs> there was on. a question. Name this a single person who had a, strong positive impact on you, something like that. I and, think it was special impact? Yeah, special impact on you. And then, so they got all the answers from people and they created a word cloud. Those was clearly a word cloud created by people who don't do word clouds for a living because they had one person whose name like appeared like nine Seven, different yeah. times, like Philip, Phil, Dr. Phil, you know, but whatever. Yeah. But they got all this. And I looked at it and I noticed something really cool. The five people from the College of Computing, I recognized, were in that cloud and um four of them were lecturers the people who teach two of them relatively modern both were chairs of our division of computing instruction one just one retired one is going to retire soon and the other two were lecturers i remembered from the 1980s um two of those four actually by the way have, the fifth person was charles that's not important the thing is i i don't tell people that but the Two of those people our well teaching done. awards are named after. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Two of those our, our teaching awards are named after, right? Yeah. So when you ask students, alumni, people who are now 60, 70 years old even, you know, who touched them, they say the dean of students. They say the big teachers who taught the big introductory classes that got me into it. There's a guy named um, Richard Bark who's on there who's 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 you know I, who's known as a great teacher, uh, the, the Phil Adler guy who... Um, who uh, I probably just said his last name wrong, but I know the first name's Phil because he kept showing up over and over again. Uh, Famous.
2: Adler is what it said. Okay, good. But but different people spelled it differently, so he appeared multiple times.
1: Right. So he was a, uh, clearly he was a professor in um, the business school, Hmm. Um, but when you read about him, I I went to read about him because I was curious who he was, you know, it's all about his teaching and the students that he Mm -hmm. touched, right? So whatever it is that we're doing and we think we're doing that's important or why we think the universities function, the people who go through it. Yeah. They remember the people who were kind to them, the people who taught them something, and they do remember it. They remember it later. I think that's important. That's what so exactly. the mission matters. Yeah,
0: not to completely lose track of the fundamental problem of how do we replace uh, the the party aspect of universities. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, before we go to the what makes the platonic professor, do you uh, do you think? It, like, what in your sense is the role of MOOCs in this whole picture during COVID? Like, are we, should we desperately be uh, clamoring to get back on campus or is this a stable place to be for a little while?
2: I don't know. I know that it's that it's the online teaching experience and learning experience has been really rough. I think that that people find it to be a struggle in a way that's not a happy. Positive struggle that yeah. when you got through it, you just feel like glad that it's over, as opposed to I've achieved something. So you know, I worry about that. But um, you know, I worry about just even before this happened, I worry about lecture teaching as how how well is that actually really working, as far as a, a way to do education as a way to, to inspire people. I mean, all the data that I'm aware of seems to indicate, and this kind of fits, I think, with Charles's story, is that people respond to connection, right? They actually feel, if, if they feel connected to the person teaching the class, they're more likely to go along with it, they're more, they're more able to retain information, they're more motivated to be involved in the class in some way, and, and that really matters. It, people- You mean
0: to the human themselves? Yeah. So but can't you do that actually, perhaps more effectively uh, online, like you mentioned, science communication. So I, I literally, I think, learned linear algebra from Gilbert Strang by watching MIT Open Courseware when I was mm-hmm. a drugs Like, and he was a personality. He was a bit like a you know tiny in, in this tiny little world of math. He's <laughs> a bit of a rock star, right? So you kind of look up to that uh, mm. to that person.
1: Can't that replace the in-person uh, education? It can help. I will point out something, I can't share the numbers, but the, we have surveyed our students, and even though they have feelings about what I would interpret as connection, I like that word, hmm. um, in the different modes of classrooms, there's no difference between how, they th- how well they think they're learning. Hmm. For them, the thing that makes them unhappy is the situation they're in, and I think the last hmm. lack of connection, it's not whether they're learning anything. They seem to think they're learning something anyway. Right And in fact, they seem to think they're learning it equally well, uh, presumably because the faculty are putting in or the instructors, more generally speaking, are putting in uh, the energy and effort to try to make certain that they're what they've curated can be expressed to them in a useful way, hmm. but the connection is missing. And so there's huge differences in what they prefer. And as far as I can tell, what they prefer is more connection, not less. That connection just doesn't have to be physically in a classroom. I mean, look, you, you know, I t- used to teach 348 students on a machine learning class on campus. Do you know why? That was the biggest classroom on campus. They're, they're, sitting in a theater, they're sitting in theater seats. I'm literally on a stage looking down on them and talking to them, right? There, there's no... I mean, we're not sitting down having a one-on-one conversation, reading each other's body language, trying to communicate, and going. We're not doing any of that. So if, you know, if you're on the, if you're past the third row, it might as well be online anyway. Is the kind of thing that people have said. Daphne has actually said some version of this um, that online starts on the third row or something like that. And I, and I think wow. that's that's not. Yeah, I I like it. I think it captures something important. Yeah. But people still came. By the way, they even the people who had access to our material would still come to class. I
0: mean, there's a certain element about looking to the person next to you. Yeah, it's That's just right. like their presence there, their mm-hmm. their boredom, and like when the parts are boring, and their excitement when the parts are exciting. Like and sharing in that, like unspoken kind of uh, yeah communication. Like in part, the connection is with the
1: other people in the room. Yeah. Watching the sur- watching the circus on TV alone is not really. <laughs> Have you ever been to a movie theater and been the only one there at a comedy? It's not as funny mm. as when you're in a room full of people yeah. all laughing. Well,
0: you need... Maybe you need just another person. It's like... Yeah. As opposed to many. Maybe maybe
1: there's some kind of... Well, there's different kinds of connection, right?
2: And there's different kinds of comedy. <laughs> well, in the sense as that... As we're learning today.
1: Where, <laughs> I wasn't
2: sure if that was going to land. But um, <laughs> just the idea that... that <laughs> different jokes, I, I've, I've now done a little bit of stand-up. And so different jokes work in different size crowds too. No, that's right? true. Yeah. Where sometimes if, you know, if it's a big enough crowd, then even a really subtle joke can take root someplace and then that cues other people and it kind of, there's a whole statistics of, I did
1: this terrible thing to my brother. So when I was really young, I decided that my brother was only laughing at sitcoms when I laughed but like he was taking cues from me. So I like purposely didn't laugh just to see if I was and did right. And you
2: laugh at non-funny things? Yes. You really want to do both sides. I did both sides.
1: Yeah. And uh, and at the end of it, I told him what I did. Oh, that's He was so very funny. upset about this. Yeah. And from that day on-
2: He's, He lost his sense of humor. No, 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 no. Well,
1: yes. But from that day on, he- he, he laughed on his own. He stopped taking cues from me. I see. So I want to say that, you know, it was a good thing that I did. But yes, it was, yes, you, you it was saved that man's life. Yes, but it was mostly mean. But it's true, though. It's true, right? Yeah. That people, I, I think you're right.
2: But okay, so that where does that get us? That gets us the idea that, I mean, certainly movie theaters are a thing. Right where people like to be watching together, even though the people on the screen can't, aren't really co-present with the people in the audience. The <laughs> audience is co-present with itself.
0: By the way, at that point, it's, it's an open question that's being raised by this, whether movies will no longer be a thing because Netflix's audience is growing. So that's, it's, a, it's a very parallel question for education. Will movie yeah. theater still be a thing right. in 2021? No, but I think, I
2: think the argument is that there is a feeling of being in the crowd that isn't replicated by being at home watching it and that there's value in that. And then I think just
1: But but it scales better on the mind. I feel like we're having a conversation about whether concerts will still exist after the invention of the record or the C D or wherever it is, right? They won't you're right concerts are dead um
2: it, well okay before i think the joke is only funny if you say
0: it before now <laughs>
1: oh, right we'll yeah that's it like, true. We'll
2: like it three post. years ago we'll it's fix, like well no obviously
1: concerts i'll wait are to publish this thing. until we have a vaccine <laughs> no, <laughs> fix, you know we'll fix it in post but i, I think the the important <laughs> thing is fix
2: the virus post. concerts changed
1: right uh, Concerts. first changed. of all, movie theaters weren't this way right in like the 60s and 70s they weren't like this like blockbusters were basically what with jaws and star wars created blockbusters right mm. um before then there weren't like the whole summer shared summer experience didn't exist in our lifetimes right yeah. certainly yeah. you were well into adulthood by the time this was true right <laughs> so it's just a very different it was. it's very different so the, what the what we're we've been experiencing in the last 10 years is not like the majority of human history but more importantly concerts right mm. concerts mean something different most people don't go to concerts mm-hmm. Anymore. Like there's an age where you care about it, you sort of stop doing it, but you keep listening to music or whatever, and da 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 da. So I think that's a painful way of saying that um, it will change. It's not the same things are going away. Replace is too strong of a word, but it will change. It has to. I I actually
0: like to push back. I wonder because I think you're probably just throwing that your intuition out. Oh, I I want. And and it's possible that concerts more people go to concerts now, but obviously much more people listen to, well, that's d- dumb, when they, than before there was records. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's possible to argue that uh, if you look at the data uh, that it just expanded the pie of what music listening means. So it's possible that like universities grow in this in the parallel, or the theaters grow, but also more people get to watch movies, more people get to yeah. uh, like be educated. Yeah,
2: so, I I hope that. Yeah, true. and to the extent that we can grow the pie and have education be not just something you do for four years when you're done <laughs> with your other education, um, but it be a more lifelong thing. That would have tremendous benefits, especially as the the economy and the world change rapidly. Like people need opportunities to stay abreast of these changes, and so I don't know. I could I could. It's, it's all part of the the ecosystem. It's all to the good. I mean, I, you know,
1: I, I'm not going to have an argument about whether we we lost fidelity when we went from laserdisc to DVDs or record players to CDs. I mean, I'm I'm willing to grant that that is true, but convenience matters and the ability to do something that you couldn't do otherwise because of that convenience matters. And you can tell me I'm only getting 90% of the experience, but I'm getting the experience. I wasn't getting it before, or it wasn't lasting as long, or it wasn't as easy. I mean, this just seems straightforward to me. It's gonna, it's going to change. It is for the good that more people get access. And it is our job to do two separate things. One, to educate them and make access available. That's our mission. But also for very simple selfish reasons, we need to figure out how to do it better so that we individually stay in business. We can do both of those things at the same time. They are not in, um, they may be intention, but they are not mutually exclusive. So you've educated
0: some scary number of people. Mm-hmm. So you've seen a lot of people succeed, find their path through life. Is there advice that you can give to a young person today? about computer science education, about education in general, about life, about uh, whatever the journey that one takes in their, maybe in their teens, in their early 20s, sort of in those underground years as you try to go through the essential process of uh, partying and not going to classes
1: and yet somehow trying to get a degree. If you get to the point where you're, you're, you're far enough up in the, in the, the hierarchy of needs that you can actually make decisions like this, then find the thing that you're passionate about and pursue it. And sometimes it's the thing that drives your life. And sometimes it's secondary and Mm -hmm. you'll do other things because you've got to eat, right? You got a family, you got to feed, you got people you have to help or whatever. I, and I understand that. And it's not easy for everyone, but, um, always take a moment or two to pursue the things that you love, the things that Bring passion and happiness to your life, and if you don't, I know that sounds corny, but I genuinely believe it. And if you don't have such a thing, then you're lying to yourself. You have such a thing; you just have to find it. And it's okay if it takes you a long time to get there. Rodney Dangerfield became a comedian in his fifties, I think. It certainly wasn't his twenties. And lots of people failed for a very long time before getting to where they were going. Um, you know, I try to have hope, and it it wasn't obvious. I mean, you know, we you, you and I talked about the experience that I had. Um, a long time ago with, with a particular police officer. Was it my first one? and wasn't my last one. Um, but you know, in my view, I wasn't supposed to be here after that. And I'm here. So it's all gravy. So you might as well go ahead and grab life as you can because of that. That's, that's sort of how I see it while recognizing again, the delusion matters, right? Allow yourself to be deluded. Allow yourself to believe that it's all going to work out. Just don't be so deluded that you, you, you miss the obvious uh, and, and you're going to be fine. It's gonna be there. It's gonna be there. It's gonna work out. What do you think?
2: I like to say, choose your parents wisely, mm-hmm. because that has <laughs> a big a, impact on it's your a big life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that you don't get to pick, um, and and uh, and whether you get to have, you know, one kind of life or a different kind of life can depend a lot on things out of your control. But I really do believe in the in the passion, and excitement thing. My, my, I was talking to my mom on the phone the other day, and. Essentially, what came out is that computer science is really popular right now, and 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 I get to be a professor teaching something that's very uh, attractive to people. And she's she was like trying to give me some appreciation for how foresightful I was for choosing this line of work, as if somehow I knew that this is what was going to happen in twenty twenty uh but that's not how it went for me at all like I, I studied computer science because I was just interested it was just so interesting to me i i didn't i didn't think it would be particularly lucrative yeah and i've done everything i've can to keep to keep it as unlucrative as possible <laughs>
0: yeah
2: Um. some of my you know some of my friends and colleagues have 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 not done that and and I pride myself on my ability to 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 remain un unrich but um <laughs> But I, th- but I, but I do believe that that, like I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad that it worked out for me. <laughs> it could have been like, oh, I, what I was really fascinated by is this particular kind of engraving that nobody cares about. But um, so I got lucky, and the thing that I cared about happened to be a thing that other people eventually cared about. But I don't think I would have had a fun time choosing anything else. Like this was the thing that kept me interested and engaged.
0: Well, one thing that people tell me, especially around early undergraduate, and. Th- the internet is part of the problem here is they say they're passionate about so many things Mm. how do i choose a thing which is a harder thing for me to know know what to do with is there any
1: i mean (laughs) don't you know which i mean you know look (laughs) a long time ago i walked down a hallway and i took a left turn yeah i could have taken a right turn and my world could be better or it could be worse I have no idea. I have no way of knowing.
2: Is there anything about this particular hallway that's relevant, or are you just in general choices?
0: Yeah, you were on the left. It sounds like you regret not taking the right oh, turn. Oh, no, not no, at, at all. Well, you brought it up.
1: Well, because <laughs> there was a turn. <laughs> <laughs> a turn there. Kidding, yeah. On the left was Michael Lemon's office, right? I mean, these sorts of yeah. things happen, right? Yes. But here's the On thing. On
2: the right, by the way, there was just a blank wall. So <laughs> it it wasn't really, a huge choice.
1: It would have
0: really hurt. He tried first.
1: No, but and, it's and it's it it's true, right? That you know, I I, I think about Ron Brockman, right? I, I I went, I took a trip I wasn't supposed to take, and I ended up talking to 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 um, Ron about this, and I ended up going down this entire path uh that allowed me to, I think, get tenure. Uh But by the way, I decided to say yes to something that didn't make any sense. And I went down this educational path, but it would have been, you know, who knows, right? Maybe if I hadn't done that, I would be a billionaire right now. I'd be Elon Musk. My life could be so much better. My life could also be so much worse. You know, you just got to feel that sometimes you have decisions you're going to make. You cannot know what's going to do. You should think about it, right? Some things are clearly smarter than other things. You got to play the odds a little bit, but in the end if you've got multiple choices or lots of things you think you might love go with the thing that you actually love the thing that jumps out at you and sort of pursue it for a little while the worst thing that'll happen is you took a left turn instead of a right turn and you ended up merely happy <laughs> beautiful
0: <book. laughs> so so accepting so taking the step and just accepting accepting that that don't like question qu- like question the choice I think life
2: is long
0: and there's time to actually pursue every once in a while uh you have to uh put on a leather suit and make a thriller video
1: <laughs> every once in a while yeah uh
0: i was told that you actually
1: danced but that part was edited out i, I don't dance <laughs> there there was a thing where we we did do the uh yeah the zombie thing yeah we did do the zombie yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. but that wasn't edited out it, it was. just wasn't it w- put into the final thing <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy but there was a reason for that too right like I wasn't wearing something right. There was a reason for that. I can't remember what it was. No, leather suit. Is that what it was? I can't remember. Anyway, the right thing happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You took the left turn and <laughs> it ended up, third or the right end up and being it. the right thing. So a lot of people ask me that are a little bit tangential to the programming, and the computing world, and they're interested to learn programming, like all kinds of disciplines that are outside of the particular discipline of computer science. What advice do you have for people that want to learn how to program? Or want to, either taste this little skill set or discipline, or try to see if it can be used somehow in, in their own
1: life. What stage of life are they in?
0: Uh, it feels well, one of the magic things about the internet of
1: the people that write me is I don't know because mm. <laughs> my answer is different for for, for di- my daughter is taking AP computer science right now. Hi, Johnny. Um, she's a. Uh, She's amazing and doing amazing things. And my son's beginning to get interested and I'll be really curious where, where he takes it. I think he's, his mind actually works very well for this sort of thing and she's doing great. But one of the things I have to tell her all the time, is she points, well, I wanna make a rhythm game. So I want to go for two weeks and then build a rhythm game, show me how to build a rhythm game. and Start small, learn the building blocks and how we take the time, have patience, eventually you'll build a rhythm game. I was in grad school when I suddenly woke up one day over the Royal East, um, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm a computer scientist, I should be able to write Pac-Man in an afternoon. And I did, not with great graphics. It was actually a very cool game. I had to figure out how the ghost moved and everything, and I did it in an afternoon in Pascal, on an old nice. Apple II GS. Um, nice. But if I had started out trying to build Pac-Man, I think it probably would have ended very poorly for me. Luckily back then, there weren't you know, these magical devices we call phones and software everywhere to give me this illusion that I could create something by myself from the basics inside of a weekend like that. I mean, that was a culmination of years and years and years, right? Before I decided, oh, I should be able to write this and, and I could. So, you know, my advice if you're early on is, you know, you've got the internet, there are lots of people there to give you the information. Find someone who cares about this. Remember, they've been doing it for a very long time. Take it slow, learn the little pieces, get excited about it, and then keep the big project you wanna build in mind. You'll get there soon enough. Because as a wise man once said, life is long, Sometimes it doesn't seem that long, but it is long and you'll have enough time to, to build it all out. It, all the information is out there, but start small. You know, Generate Fibonacci numbers. That's not exciting, but it'll well, get you a programming language. And, well, there's only one programming language. It's Lisp. But if you have to pick a programming language, I guess in today's day, what would I do? I guess I'd do...
2: Python is basically do Lisp, Python. but with, with better syntax.
1: Blasphemy. Yeah, C- with C syntax. How about that? So you're going to argue that C syntax is better than anything? Anyway, also I'll go. I'm going to answer this Python business. despite. What tell, he said. tell me,
2: tell your story about the somebody's dissertation that had a LISP program <laughs> in it. <laughs> it
1: was so funny. This is a this is Dave's Dave's dissertation Dave, was like yeah, Dave, Dave McAllister, McAllister who was a professor at MIT for a while, and, and then, then he came in our to in our Bell Labs, at, at, and, 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 and now he's T- at um, now he's at Technology Technical Institute of Chicago. Uh, a brilliant guy, uh, such an interesting guy. Anyway, his thesis. Uh, It was a a theorem prover. And he decided to have as an appendix uh, his actual code, which of course was all written in Lisp because of course it was. Mm -hmm. And like the last 20 pages are just right
3: parentheses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just wonderful. It's like that's programming right there. Just pages upon pages of right parentheses. Anyway, Lisp is the only real language, but I understand that that's not necessarily the place where you start. Python is just fine. Python is good. (laughs) If you're you know of a certain age, if you're really young and trying to figure it out graphical languages that let you kind of see how the thing works, and that's fine too they're all fine. It almost doesn't matter, but there are people who spend a lot of time thinking about how to build uh languages that get people in the question is are you trying to get in and figure out what it is, or do you already know what you want and that's why I asked you what stage of life people are in because if you're different stages of life you you would you would attack it differently
0: the The answer to that question of which language keeps changing i mean there's yes. some value to exploring uh a lot of people write to me about julia there's mm-hmm. there's these like more modern languages that keep being invented rust and and kotlin there's stuff that uh for people who love functional languages like lisp that there apparently there's echoes of that but much better mm-hmm. in in the modern languages and it, it's worthwhile to uh especially when you're learning languages it feels like it's okay to try one that's not like the popular one.
2: Oh yeah, but you know, you and want. I think you get that. Simple. You get that way of thinking, almost no matter what language. Mm-hmm. And if you if you push far enough, like it can be assembly language, but you need to push pretty far yeah. before you start to hit the really deep concepts that you would get sooner in other languages. But like. I don't know. Computation is kind of computation, is kind of yeah. Turing equivalent is kind of computation. And so it's so it matters how you express things, but you have to build out that mental structure in your mind. And you I I don't I don't think it super matters which language.
1: I mean, it matters a little because some things are just at the wrong level of abstraction. I think assembly's at the wrong level of abstraction for someone coming in new. Um, I think that if you start for someone coming frame, in new. Yes. Sure. For frameworks, big frameworks are are quite a bit. Um, you know you've got to get to the point where I want to learn a new language means I just pick up a reference book and I think of a project and I go through it in a weekend right you got you got to get there you're right though the languages that are designed for that are it, it almost doesn't matter. Pick the ones that people have built tutorials and infrastructure around to help you get kind of kind of ease into it because it's hard i mean we, I did this little experiment with um, I was teaching intro to c s in the summer as a favor uh which is, anyway, I was, Pleas, teaching, pleasant intro, memories. Yeah. I was teaching intro to CS as a favor. And it was very funny, because I'd go in every single time, and I, I would think to myself, how am I possibly gonna fill up an hour and a half talking about for loops, right? And th- there wasn't enough time. It took me a while to realize this, right? But there are only three things, right? There's reading from a variable, writing to a variable, and conditional branching. Everything else is syntactic sugar, mm-hmm. right? The syntactic sugar matters, but that's it. And when I say that's it, I don't mean it's simple. I mean, it's hard. Like mm-hmm. conditional branching, loops, variable. Those are really hard concepts. So you shouldn't be discouraged by this. Here's a simple experiment. I'm going to ask you a question now. You ready? Oh. X equals three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Y equals four. Okay. What is X? Three. What is Y? Four. Y I'm equals X. <laughs> no? That's, oh, it's, it's easy to Y equals X. Y equals X. What is Y? Uh, three. That's right. X equals seven,
0: what is Y? That's one of the trickiest things to get for programmers that there's a memory and the variables are pointing to a particular thing in memory, and sometimes the languages hide that from you and they bring it closer to the way you think
1: mathematics works. Right, so in fact, Mark Guzdial, who worries about these sorts of things, or used to worry about these sorts of things anyway, had this kind of belief that actually people, when they see these statements, X equals something, Y equals something, Y equals X, mm-hmm. that you have now uh, made a mathematical statement that Y and X are the same. Yeah.
2: Which you can if you just put like an anchor in front of it.
1: Yes, but people, that's not what you're doing, Yeah. right? I thought, and I kind of asked the question, and I, I think I had some evidence for this, I'm, it's hardly a study, is that most of the people who didn't know the answer, weren't sure about the answer, they had used spreadsheets. Uh-huh. Interesting, and so it's a it's a name it's 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 you know, um, it's by it's by reference or by name really, mm. right? And so depending upon what you think they are, you get completely different answers. The fact that I could go or one could go, two thirds of the way through a semester, and people still hadn't figured out in their heads when you say y equals x what that meant, tells you it's actually hard. Because all those answers are possible. And in fact, when you said, oh, if you just put an ampersand in front of it, I mean, that doesn't make any sense for an intro class. And of course, a lot of languages don't even give you the ability to think about it in terms of ampersand. Mm-hmm. Do we want to have a 45-minute discussion about the difference between equal EQ and equal uh, in Lisp? Yeah, I know you do. I no. <laughs> know <that. laughs> but, you know, you could do that. It's, this is actually really hard stuff. So you shouldn't be... It's not too hard, we all do it, but you shouldn't be discouraged. It's why you should start small, so that you can figure out these things so you have the right model in your head, so that when you write the language, you can execute it and, and build the machine that you, you want to build, right? Yeah, the,
0: the funny thing about programming and those very basic things is the the, the, the very basics are not often made explicit which is actually what drives everybody away from basically any discipline, but programming is just another one. Like even a simpler version of the equal sign that I kind of forget is in mathematics, equals is not assignment. Yeah. Like I think basically every single programming language with just a few handful of exceptions equals is assignment. Mm-hmm. And you have some other operator for uh, equality. Yeah. and you know, even that, like everyone kind of knows it mm-hmm. once you started doing it. But like, you need to say that explicitly or you just realize it like yourself. Uh, otherwise you you might be stuck for, you said like half a semester, you could be stuck for mm-hmm. quite a long time. And I think also part of the programming is being okay in that state of confusion for a while. It's, the, it's to the debugging yeah. point. It's like, I just wrote two lines of code why doesn't this work? And staring at that for like hours <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
0: and trying to figure out. And then every once in a while, you just have to restart your computer and everything works again. And then and then you just kind of stare in, into the void with the tears slowly
1: rolling down your eye. By the way, the fact that they didn't get this actually had no impact on, I mean, they were still able to do their assignments. Right. Because it turns out their misunderstanding wasn't being revealed to them Yes, by the problem sets we were... Profound. actually yeah i wrote a um uh, a program a long time ago actually for my master's thesis and uh, in c++ i think or c i guess it was c and it was uh, all memory management and terrible um and it wouldn't work for a while and it was some kind of it was clear to me that it was overriding memory and i just couldn't i was like look i, I got a paper deadline time for this so i basically declared a variable at the front in the main that was like 400K, just an array, and it worked. Because wherever I was scribbling over memory, it would scribble into that space and it didn't matter. And so I never figured out what the bug was, but I did create something to sort of deal with
2: it. To work around it.
1: And it, you know, that's crazy, that's crazy. It was okay, because that's what I wanted. But I knew enough about memory management to go, you know, management to go, you know, I'm just going to create an empty array here and hope that that deals with the scribbling memory problem, uh, and it did. That takes a long time to figure out. And by the way, the language you first learned probably does garbage collection anyway, so you're not even going to come up across. You're not going to come across that problem. Huh.
0: So we talked about the the Minsky idea of hating everything you do and hating yourself. Uh, so let's end on a, a question that's going to make both of you very uncomfortable. Okay, which is what is your Charles, what's your favorite thing that you're grateful for about Michael? (laughs) And Michael, what is your favorite thing that you're grateful for about Charles? Mm. Well,
1: that answer is actually quite easy. His friendship. He stole the easy answer. I did. Yeah, I can
2: tell you what I hate about Charles. (laughs) He steals my good answers. The thing I like most about Charles, he sees the world in in a similar enough, but different way that I, it's sort of like having another life. It's sort of like I get to experience things that I wouldn't otherwise get to experience because I would not naturally gravitate to them that way. And so he just, he just shows me a whole other world. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. The, the inner product is not <laughs> zero for sure. It's not quite one point seven, maybe just enough that you can learn. <laughs>
0: Just enough that you can learn. <laughs> That's the definition of friendship. The inner product is 0. 0.7.
1: Yeah, I think so. That's the answer to life, really.
2: <laughs> Charles sometimes believes in me when I have not believed in me. He can. He also sometimes works as an outward confidence that he has so much, so much confidence and self, I don't know, Awareness. comfortableness.
1: Okay, let's go with that. Um,
2: that I feel better a little bit. If he If he thinks I'm okay, then maybe I'm not as bad as I think I am.
0: At the end of the day, luck favors the Charles. <laughs> it's a huge honor to talk with you. Thank you so much for taking this time, wasting your time with me. It was an awesome conversation. You guys are an inspiration to a huge number of people and to me, so really enjoyed this. Thanks for I talking. I enjoyed
1: it as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, and by the way, if luck favors the Charles, then it's certainly the case that I've been very lucky to know you.
0: Oh, I'm going to end that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this conversation with Charles Isbell and Michael Littman. And thank you to our sponsors, Athletic Greens, Super Nutritional Drink, Eight Sleep, Self-Cooling Mattress, Masterclass Online Courses from some of the most amazing humans in history, and Cash App, the app I use to send money to friends. Please check out the sponsors in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, Subscribe on YouTube, review it with 5 stars on Apple Podcast, follow on Spotify, support it on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now, let me leave you with some words from Desmond Tutu. Don't raise your voice. Improve your argument. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.